ho, ho, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and all those good things. I'm Ross May. Welcome to Film Strips. Film Strips is the podcast where each and every week, Dave Babbitt and Andrew Kanegeezer, who is off in a magical land somewhere having an adventure, but <laughs> Dave and Andrew, uh, every week, what do they do? Oh, I've already forgotten how it all goes. You, well, that's okay. Actually, you know what? Maybe just stop. No, no, no. I was, gonna, I was just going to keep in my mistake. It's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Each no, and every I'm week, that... they watch yeah. a movie, and it must connect back to the person on the preceding week. And <laughs> what else is there? Uh, uh, they dissect things. They interrogate yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. They beat movies to a pulp, <laughs> and they look at the movies, and it's a lot of fun. Welcome to Film Strips. Dave, introduce what i'm here for yes so uh, unlike our show where apparently we are jigsaw uh from the saw movies in this instance uh yes this uh, the person who just introduced me is ross may the host of reitman for the job the podcast that's all about the works of the late great ivan reitman yes the filmmaker behind things such as ghostbusters and legal eagles and yeah. my super ex-girlfriend. And, yeah, plenty of other things. I probably just should have said Dave in there and uh, left it at that because that probably would have been a better one to sort of go out on. But I have to be honest there as well. He he did make some... Are you the Dave from Dave? Uh, <laughs> no, and thank goodness for that. I don't think I would want to be in the political hellscape that is. I was, about, I was about to say, well, you could be Kevin Klein then, but yeah, I, I get your point. No, you don't want to be in the White House otherwise. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, so uh, yes, uh, for those of you who've uh, been around and been following uh, either of these shows for the past few years, you might know that uh, there's one thing and one thing we tend to do once a year, every year. Isn't there, Russ? We watch Japanese movies because isn't that just perfect for the holidays? But yeah, no, all yeah. all year all year long we watch a big movie series that generally that we have never seen entirely before. Uh, a few years ago we watched all the Zatoichi movies; those were a lot of fun. Last year it was uh, all the Showa Godzilla movies. I actually watched all. I finished up and watched all the other Godzilla movies. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we are following Godzilla movies. We're following uh, several actors, but among them include Keiju Kobayashi. He was the prime minister in Godzilla 1984. Is that guy? So he's trying. He's trying to talk to the world like, "Don't destroy Japan. We can try to lure Godzilla into a volcano. That'll solve all our problems." But uh, uh, <laughs> Keiju Kobayashi, he was the prime minister in Godzilla 1984. He is also the grandfather with a little antique shop in a movie called Whisper of the Heart from 1995. And uh, we are going to watch all the Ghibli movies. That's what we did this year. And that was a lot of fun, Dave. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, no, this was uh, particularly for me. There were some big gaps with the uh, Ghibli films there that I hadn't seen. And again, um, no real excuse. It's just I hadn't gotten around to them yet. And yeah, so this year was the year I finally uh, got around to doing this in this instance and doing it with you on. Initially, it was a biweekly basis. Eventually, for a while there, it just became. Well, it's the summer. We'll get cranked oh, through these sure. things one at a week. We have the time here, uh, which is probably good because, you know, they have quite a body of work at this point. Small compared to, say, like, you know, Walt Disney, but that was studio's been running for a much longer period of time and producing many more films uh, during that run, uh, per se. And speaking of how many movies there are, Dave, I'm going to take control of things. 
This is yes. this is the Twilight Zone. I control the vertical and horizontal, but there is no horizontal or vertical on audio. But you get my point. But anyway, uh, I'm going to take control of things, and I'm going to give everyone out there the rundown. Founded in 1985 by directors Hayao Miyazaki, the late Isao Takahata, and producer Toshio Suzuki, Studio Ghibli has produced 20 theatrical films, two television movies, and more animated projects, including shorts and commercials. Their animation is highly regarded the world over, winning numerous awards, making Ghibli seen as THE premier animation studio of Japan. Of the top 10 highest grossing films in Japanese theaters, four are by Studio Ghibli. They are more successful in their native country than any Marvel or Star Wars movie, and also more successful than Japan's leading movie star, Godzilla. Coming up after film strips, Hanna-Barbera presents The Thief and the Cobbler, the animated series. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to get my joke. Yeah, no, I absolutely get that one. I mean, that that's a deep dive there. Let's. I'm, I'm going to explain that joke for everyone. For what? For once, just just lay it out there. If anyone doesn't know, the Thief and the Cobbler was a is, is an impressive looking animated movie. I've seen. You can watch it. You can uh, watch it on YouTube. And an animator uh, spent 20, 30 years of his life with uh, rotating staff putting this movie together. It was it was so well known in animation circles that um the movie Aladdin um which was made in I don't know like 3 years or something like The Thief and the Cobbler started in the 60s uh it had Vincent Price playing the villain who's basically just Jafar all these other rotating uh, actors they had they had uh but they had Vincent Price and he died <laughs> and they still had they still had this movie they were working on and then Disney um uh uh, Howard Ashman really wanted to do a version of Aladdin, but also all the animators are saying like, we know about the thief and the cobbler. Let's just beat him to the punch because he's not going to finish that movie and we'll just make Aladdin. And Aladdin has a lot of elements from the thief and the cobbler, this famously unfinished movie. And you can watch like 90, 95% of it on YouTube. So the idea of making a crappy animated series out of this that uh that, that its animators would absolutely hate i thought i found amusing well and that's the thing i mean it, it's like i remember that film because the end they did technically release a version but not with the director's approval and heavily modified and re-edited on him as well at one point i think they slapped on like a completely uh, voice cast that he didn't even want on the one version so it's yeah the, the production history on that thing is amazingly frustrating uh there and fascinating but it's yeah i like there's nothing quite like it in terms of that kind of production history where yeah somebody worked for so long and basically you know everything just sort of collapsed at the end like it was it did there absolutely so, yeah and and speaking yeah. of like animators who are working at their craft and think like i got to get this perfect and i'm never satisfied with things leads into a good talk about Studio Ghibli and the people who are um, um, in charge of it. And speaking of which, but but uh, Dave, before we get in, dive directly into the movies, I want to uh, tell you an anecdote. So it's Christmas time. I'm sure that you and all the listeners out there are very familiar with the old Rankin Bass uh, cartoon specials, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So Rankin Bass cartoons. You've got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and. 
all the rest little drummer boy i don't know i i uh, uh, rudolph is kind of the best one and and i don't even really like that one that much but uh um rankin bass was an american well they were obviously they were two american men an american company um produced over there what a lot of people don't realize is that all those specials were also still uh, outsourced to japan in fact huh. yeah in fact um including the stop motion ones like rudolph in fact like those are some of the first anime that were made for um uh, american companies including including oh, okay. rudolph and all of those like that that's sort of crazy to think um that was done by one company a company that did some of the anime uh, the animated ones was a company called topcraft topcraft uh they did not do the very uh they did fine animation. They were not very financially sound. I think their most famous cartoon of those that they did was like one of the Frosty sequels or something. And uh, they were always kind of like, oh, we're trying to get some more capital here. They were kind of failing. So it was kind of interesting that you get to the 1980s and like they're in bad financial straits. A certain man named Hayao Miyazaki comes in and it's sort of interesting that he chooses Topcraft and their staff to be uh, the people who will animate an adaptation of a comic he has been doing for years and years called Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And he picks Topcraft. And he also, uh, on top of choosing them, like, you're going to animate this um, uh, movie, he's also directed TV shows and at least on one movie already himself. He directed uh, Lupin III, Castle of Cagliostro uh, movie that I've mentioned before on podcasts. He chooses them and they spend some time and they make this film and it's, we'll talk about it. It's an impressive looking film. Topcraft is still ready for bankruptcy. And maybe Miyazaki was very smart in choosing them because what he and his pals, um, Azeo Takahata and their producer friend who came from the world of publishing, Toshio Suzuki, these three men get together and what they can just do is buy the company Topcraft. So a lot of people don't realize that uh, uh, Ghibli, yes, it was, it changed its name. It became a, a new company in 1985. But before that, it was this company called Topcraft, and they used to make old Rankin-Bass specials. Oh, and that is the same that company. Part, yeah, I had no idea about that. Fascinating. Uh, there, I always just assumed the Rankin-Bass stuff was done in-house in America. Uh, I really need to look into this uh, more closely uh, going forward here. People remember the puppets more, the little the little stop motion figures, and all of those were um, um, over in Japan as well. Yeah, but yeah, so this actually this company called Topcraft became Studio Ghibli, which finally to round out my anecdote here, like that brings up I think the most salient point about Miyazaki and uh, Takahata and Suzuki. Uh, if anyone out there knows about Miyazaki's life story, like they'll sort of think like, oh, he he likes to present himself as very intelligent, which he is, uh, very talented, and an extremely hard worker. That he would he sort of goes, I worked harder than all of my contemporaries, and then I was able to buy a company, and then I um, took a gamble on ourselves, and uh, we we made this successful little em I say little empire, like they have millions and millions of like probably hundreds millions of dollars and and uh, this was all through my hard work and vision and like yeah okay all of that is true it also ignores and he would absolutely hate it if i if i told this to his face and if he could under, understand what i'm saying his story is a very american story because he grew up rich 
<laughs> during World War II, um, his family, the Miyazakis, had multiple houses, which is what, like, if one of them burnt, on, none of his houses burned down, actually, in, in air bombings or anything, but if, if he did, like, he would have been okay with another home. Um, he, had, he grew up with servants. And Hayao Miyazaki likes to really obscure that fact that he grew up the equivalent of a millionaire. And so he goes to Tokyo and he says like, yeah, and, and you know, I worked so hard and I just, the pay was lousy and I just lived in a single room apartment. It's like, well, Miyazaki, it's different from you having a one room apartment versus all your uh, colleagues who needed their paychecks. They couldn't quit their jobs. Which is part of the story of uh, his animation always looked his animation always looked better because he and Takahata were always late and they they spent extra time on what they were working on and they didn't care if they blew off deadlines and their bosses would get mad at them at Toei and at Telecom and other places and they would get fired and they'd say whatever I'm making the best stuff. And they were making the best stuff because they didn't need the jobs because these were the rich weirdos who were working in animation. And it's, it's it's so that that is kind of the end of my my uh, uh, story there. That I'm kind of frustrated with these guys. That yes, they are very talented. Um, uh, I'm very impressed with the movies that we're going to talk about today. But they like to go. I worked harder than all the other guys. None of them ended up, you know, forming their own companies. Well, everyone else had to stick to a deadline, and they couldn't lose their job. Everyone else was actually making do on their paychecks, and these guys weren't. Well, and that, yeah, that's a huge, huge point to keep in mind when it comes to these uh, uh, gentlemen here, because, you know, I mean, they absolutely were the benefit benefited from their privilege uh, in this instance to be able to do this. And look, uh, I'm no expert here, but it really you do not need to scratch too far beneath the surface to realize just how difficult making a living in uh the Japanese animation industry is uh, there. Maybe the only thing more difficult is trying to make a living in the manga industry, which is even more brutal somehow. Uh, when you Both of those this. and video games are all, um, yeah, those are all, all very tough industries in uh, Japan. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just the thing. I mean, there's a, I mean, the downside to what, uh, you know, all these wonderful films that we will be talking about shortly here is, yeah, there's a heavy degree of exploitation that uh, does happen with the crews and animators on there. So, yes, we are likely going to be praising a lot of these films uh, to high heaven, and for good reason. They are masterful artworks uh, in most instances. But let's not obscure the you know the, how the uh, sausage is made, as it were. Uh, in this, this yeah, instance. absolutely. We will get, and we'll get into the movies right away, but yeah, just... And everyone kind of know, like if anyone is listening to this now, they've probably seen some uh, Miyazaki footage or maybe even some memes on how like like oh he's so demanding of workers is like he's made workers uh, quit he's made workers uh, both of both of them cry uh, a few people will talk about like kind of died almost at their desks like, like like they were very they were extremely rough on some people and they can go and say well we pay some of the best wages in the animation industry is like, yeah, the definition of the best wages in animation for them is that people can make up, make do may have a living and have an apartment. And like that, I, I don't want to overlook that, that that is true. The flip side of it is that like, again, 
these guys became millionaires and, you know, ev- they are demanding everyone else around them works just as hard as them. All these, all the staff members, they don't get the millions of dollars on toys about Totoro. Well, absolutely. And, you know, when we get to uh, a certain individual by the name of Goro here, I would be fascinated. Oof, yeah. To hear what he has to say all, all about this, given what we will know about his relationship with at least one of the individuals uh, here uh, that we're discussing in this instance. But yeah, it's yeah, it's absolutely frustrating. And that certainly this is not to say that somehow or make imply that the animation industry in, say, Hollywood here is you know somehow immune to this. It isn't, not yeah. by a long shot uh, here. But it's just, it seems very particular given, I mean, you say Disney's exploitative, nobody bats an eye in a sense. It's like, yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense there. They are a, in many ways, a soulless, heartless corporation. And that's what we anticipate in this instance. When it comes to uh, Ghibli, though, because of their stature and how the high regard in which they're, uh, they are held, it feels like people are willing to give them quite a few passes in areas where, no, I'm pretty sure you still shouldn't do that uh, in this day and age. And again, you know, just look at some of the special features on some of the discs and <laughs> yeah. some of the comments being made here. And oh boy, yeah, it, again, you really don't need to go that far to find evidence of, yeah, I, I'm not so certain that this is, uh, you know, something that we shouldn't be a little more critical of here. Uh, but uh absolutely I agree with you. And for anyone out there like man, these guys are starting out hard on Ghibli and the directors over there. Maybe I just wanted to start off with that to to provide something different, something that I discovered along the way. I read a lot I read a lot of books actually by the way, everyone. But um something that uh, we've discovered and that's a little bit different rather than just the usual narrative of these guys are so demanding at the top, and but they produce this magical thing. It's like, yeah, I, I am very impressed with their end products. And I think it is fair for us sometimes to, you know, to try to be more critical of the people, especially at the top of the company there. But here's what I've done, Dave and everyone. So I mentioned, I believe there are, as of uh, this year, there are 20 theatrical movies, two... Um, TV special movies. Uh, I also threw in Castle of Cagliostro in there, just a which is which is not a Ghibli movie. It was what he did, Miyazaki did before forming the company. Um, so we have all that. I decided to just put them on slips of paper, and they're all in a box, and I'll just draw them out at random rather than going right. through a. Because if we did a big narrative, then we would be go. I would stick on with like, well, in this year, this happens. Like, no, no, let, let's get into the movies themselves now. So everyone, there's. There's technology for you. A big box and some pieces of paper. And we will start out. The winner is... Ooh, this is a good one. Kiki's Delivery Service. The 1989, uh, but directed by Hayao Miyazaki. You start, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is one of those ones where, and I have to say, you know, I didn't really watch it until quite a bit later uh, in life. But I remember growing up in the 90s and... Uh, back there used to be Wizard Magazine, for those who remember the existence of uh, that little thing there. And the thing that was notable about Wizard Magazine is, you know, way back in the 90s, they, they did have quite a bit about manga and anime in there. And this was before I even had a full understanding of what those terms were referring to, per se. Um, 
there, and but you would see the advertisements for Kiki's delivery service uh, in the book there when that one was coming out there, which is where I first heard about it there uh, in this instance, which is interesting because that is quite a few years after the film had been released in Japan itself uh, by that point in time. And I believe this was Disney was the one, if I'm not mistaken, who did first bring Kiki's delivery service over. Did they not? You're right. So on top of just being a good movie, but um, Kiki is kind of uh, pivotal in the story of Ghibli and especially Ghibli coming to uh, Western audiences because this was the first movie that um, Disney got to... um, do the the dubbing for they started this new relationship with disney that lasted for several years it has now since mostly ended and um yeah so uh new english voices uh it came out in 1997 so like i'm impressed right there from 1989 to 97 how many other 80s animated movies would still look and and be accepted by different audiences eight years after the fact, right? Like you couldn't do that with Fox and the Hound or the Great Mouse Detective or something. Like those those things would look moldy and old in the 90s. But Kiki's Delivery Service uh, looked very good almost a decade later. And they got uh, Kristen Dunst as playing Kiki. And uh, oh yeah, my, my big joke about this is how do you like the animated version of Spider-Man 2? Because it's funny, on top of having Kristen Dunst who would play uh, Mary Jane in a few years, uh the story is the nominal story ends up being towards the end is that Kiki loses confidence. She loses her witch powers and she's got a basic same as Spider-Man in that movie. She's got to get <laughs> when, when chips, when the, when the chips are down and she's got to save someone and she gets back her magic powers just in time. And that's, it's, it's a really great movie. Well, and that's the thing. It absolutely is uh, an extremely fun one. And one of the best that Miyazaki did there. And yes, I, uh, I did a ranking uh, of these films over the course of the year uh, here, and I put it at number three uh, in terms of my overall ranking. It's like, it is a really sweet-natured, good film there. And certainly, uh, you know, and I think that's one of the big things that sort of distinguishes, you know, Ghibli from, say, the crassness of, say, Disney in this way, is that there is... As much as they have marketed the hell out of uh, certain aspects of their films, uh, uh, to say the least, you know, the story and the, the sort of emotion of the story and, you know, an understanding of their target audience comes first and foremost in this instance there. And I never get the sense is or the sense that uh, they are exploitative of kids in quite the same way as say. Disney's, and now we're bringing out the full marketing spread of everything to target here, and the film is trying to serve, in many ways, as almost like a giant ad for buy, buy, buy. Uh, here. I, that, I have a daughter th- and a niece who are both in love with Frozen, so I couldn't yep. possibly know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I definitely have a niece who's in that exact same thing. She loves Elsa. Uh, and and fair enough. That is that is perfect. If if kids love Elsa, let the you know you gotta let them run with it. But yeah, but Kiki is also is very special, and it's a better movie. But yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, no, absolutely there. And yeah, it's a beautifully animated film. And again, it's a nice sort of segue. I think you know, particularly. Uh, when it comes to anime, in this day and age, with Japanese animation coming over to North America, there is a a wide plethora of stuff that you have access to now, or fans have access to now, that, you know, 
what did not exist even, you know, 15 years ago uh, for, or, 50, or even 20 years ago at this point there. And again, you know, I remember, like, I was not a big anime fan necessarily growing up in the sense that I just didn't have access. There wasn't much. I mean, the probably the biggest thing that was available at the time was Sailor Moon. And I mm. certainly wasn't the target audience for that uh, in this instance. But uh, although I will say... I did like the design and style of the show uh, there, even in its sort of butchered, Americanized form at the time there. All those, so, act, all those actors were over in Toronto, I think. They, you, you can go say hi to them, Dave. That is true there. Um, and, but the thing about it here is that in uh, when it comes to this, I mean, as sort of a starting point, if you do have young fans there, Ghibli is probably the best starting point for young kids getting into... Uh, animation, particularly if you're looking at Japanese animation in, in this instance there, because, again, you know, because it's compared to the North American Hollywood market there, uh, animation is much more diversified. I, I think it's safe to say in terms of Japan, in terms of both the subject matter they're willing to approach, the audience they're willing to approach there. In this instance, Ghibli is pretty consistently closer to family fare more often than not. There are exceptions, yeah. and we're going to get to those uh, here, folks. Uh, some big ones there. But, yeah, I would say that, you know, nine times out of ten, you're probably pretty good starting off. And Kiki's Delivery Service is a fantastic one to start as a sort of entry point if you're going to be exploring it either yourself or with kids in this instance. I would agree. Kiki is one of the best. And I pulled out the next movie. And this is actually good, continuing sort of that story. Spirited Away, again from Hayao Miyazaki. This is uh, from 2001. Um, uh, when I say that uh, it's continuing a story is because Kiki's Delivery Service was um, the start of Disney doing the dubs and uh, releasing movies in North America. Spirited Away is a big deal. Also, uh, By the way, I don't think we skipped over the name. Everyone's favorite guy who wears Hawaiian shirts, John Lasseter. John Lasseter uh, met uh, Miyazaki and some of the other Ghibli staff way back when they were doing uh, Castle of I think you, yeah, like uh, uh, Miyazaki came to America uh, one year um, showing off uh, Castle of Cagliostro, his first movie, to try to drum up um, uh, American cash and uh, American projects that TMS, his old company uh, that he worked for, could do. So he has loved uh, Miyazaki for years and years, always said Disney. When we got into Pixar and then Disney, 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 we should be working with Studio Ghibli. Um, he started that relationship with Kiki's Delivery Service. The first movie, Spirited Away, um, he got Disney to invest money into that movie. So this was first uh, uh, first of Disney is going to really be more of a partner with Studio Ghibli. And uh, it also paid off on the back end, literally because of money, but also it paid off on the other end because uh, John Laster said, I am going to make a big push for this movie, Spirited Away, to win um, the uh, Oscar for Best Animated Feature, which was only in its third year by that point. Uh, it, it, and th in that year for 2001, it, it was up against like Ice Age and like Lilo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch was also a good movie, but like, but I can understand like not a lot of uh, 
uh, Academy Award uh, voters really under getting on its wavelength. So John yeah. Lasseter really put made a big campaign, even against Disney's own Lilo and Stitch, which some of the Lilo and Stitch people were really bothered by. But he put a big campaign in Los Angeles to everyone: you should be putting uh, you should be putting your votes behind Spirited Away, and this is uh, Miyazaki's one Oscar. And that's what it is. And I'm I'm telling this whole story around the the movie. The movie it is also it is very interesting. It's uh, visually one of his most his busiest and most interesting movies. I would also say it might be overrated to me. It not in that not in that it's a bad movie. I think it is a good movie. But like, if I'm gonna watch, especially show kids Kiki's Delivery Service or Spirit Away, I'd go for Kiki. I like I don't I don't think this is Miyazaki's best film. But as far as the Oscars are concerned, this is his winner. Well, and here's the thing about it, because again, I was watching the I was watching these films in such close succession uh, in this instance, and this was really sort of my first time with Spirited Away. It is a good movie. Yeah, I get why people like it, but it also feels like the one thing you'll notice, particularly with Miyazaki's films, when you watch them in such close succession. Yes, he has a consistent voice. Yes, he has a consistent set of thematic interests throughout his work. He also has a, you know, a consistent set of tropes. And when you look at Spirited Away, you can see all of them in very close succession. And yeah, he does them well enough, but I, it feels like by this point, you know, or when you get to that film, yeah, he's already done a lot of the stuff. And in many instances, far more interesting and in far better ways there. And uh, certainly I would even say that there is at least one film that's going to, from him that comes afterwards that I would say is vastly uh, better uh, than Spirited Away itself. And I think does tend to get overlooked uh, there, but we'll get to that one when we pull it out of the, the hat here. But yeah, I, I know it's going to be controversial to say, I agree. Spirited Away, it's overrated. It's not bad, but it's not the film I think that people make it out to be in terms of, you know, being one of the big artistic works from him as a filmmaker in this instance. Yeah. Well, maybe as purely in terms of what you're seeing in the animation, because it is weird. There are weird uh, yokai monsters and stuff going around. For everyone who wants to know, it's it's about a girl who um, accidentally sort of gets trapped in kind of the spooky magical twilight sort of world, you know, and, and she's missing her parents. She's got to rescue her parents and get back to reality, reality. And, uh, very much also, also, uh, something that Miyazaki might be annoyed by. You can also pick up on, Oh, this part's kind of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, this, this part you stole from Greek mythology. Oh, well, lifted, f fine. But there, 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 and, and uh, lots of Japanese elements as well. But just a lot of weirdness, and some of the things are just little tangents and just weird moments to finally reach the conclusion of here's a girl who's going to overcome obstacles and uh, overcome magic to get back to reality. But anyway. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, it, visually it is, yeah, one of the most distinctive in terms of the design because there is so much going on. But you're absolutely right. The story is just standard fare at the end of the day and not nearly as engaging as one would hope for, particularly for a film that's as hyped up as that one has been over time. Yep. I pulled out a new movie. Like, most of these are going to be Hayao Miyazaki because he did uh, half of these movies or more. But anyway, it's, again, it's Hayao Miyazaki, 1986, and it's Castle in the Sky. Do you want me to, yes. do you want me to talk about this one? Because I think I have... Yeah. This also, um, again, the Castle in the Sky 
it's really up there. And I think some people, it's it's the inverse of uh, Spirited Away. I think it gets lost in the shuffle for a lot of people. I think it is a lot of uh, fun. It's um, got it's got great visuals as well. And so it's just a really good uh, story. Uh, two kids think that there might be a mysterious continent in the sky, which is coming from Jonathan Swift. And the one criticism I could make of that is that we all know uh, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. When he gets to the castle in the sky stuff, he calls it something in Spanish to be insulting of science and scientists. And I don't know if Miyazaki understood that. if he, Because uh, in the Japanese version especially, they just use the Spanish word that is not, that is not actually that great. But anyway... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm losing the track there again, but I think this is a tremendous uh, adventure and that's basically all it is. It's just a great adventure uh, for more connective tissue. A lot of video games, understandably, take a lot of inspiration from Ghibli movies. Castle in the Sky uh, might be the most lifted from for Final Fantasy, anytime in Final Fantasy where there's a continent in the sky, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, when they've got floating islands in the sky, the recent Legend of Zelda games like uh, Breath of the Wild, not Breath of uh, Skyward Sword, and the one that's coming up, Tears of the Kingdom, uh, the 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 old discarded robots, they are in different shapes. But those robots, you watch uh, everyone watch Castle in the Sky, and you'll see. And if you've played Breath of the Wild, you'll go, "Oh, the robots come from Castle in the Sky. That's what this is." They just straight up have some of the the Triforce symbols. In this movie, it's just like, oh, that's where the Nintendo people got this. So, uh, if you want to, if if you happen to be a Legend of Zelda fan or something, this will also make you go, oh, they took so much from this movie. Anyway, but I find that interesting. Well, no, it absolutely is, and I mean, certainly when you're looking at some of the robot designs, there's part of me that almost wonders whether Miyazaki saw the Mad Scientist. There is the, also, uh, oh, and, and and yeah, uh, so I'm sorry that. He took it from there. The the outline of the robots in this movie definitely come from the second Superman uh, cartoon, um, the mechanical monsters. And if you yes, point that right. out to him again, it's like, hey, you did you got this from a Superman cartoon? He would get so mad because he said because in and I was reading his books. I hate Disney. I hate the old Flesher cartoons. I hate Popeye <laughs> cartoons. I hate Soviet <laughs> cartoons. Everyone has made bad cartoons. You make me wonder, like, well, why are you making cartoons? But yeah, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly. It. I mean, it's a film where, I mean, look, we haven't touched on uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind yet, which is probably what one of the big ones when we get to that. But the thing about it is, that's a film that's not particularly subtle in its messaging. Somehow, Castle in the Sky is even less subtle with its anti-war and environmental messaging when you're watching it, like. It is literally hammering you over the head very blatantly with it there. And yet, I will say this. Nine times out of ten, I would find that utterly irritating. This is that one time where it's like, no, somehow you're, you know, bludgeoning me, but I'm okay with that here. And I don't, you know, and I'm not sure I can really pin down what the distinction is, why this one feels a bit different in that way. Um... But yeah, I mean, it, it really is a, you know, it's definitely a worthwhile film. I ranked it eight on the list uh, myself there. There's quite a few uh, up above on that there. But I think it is a, a, magnif a magnificent film. And again, one that is highly enjoyable. So well worth your time, uh, absolutely. Yes, I like Castle in the Sky too. 
oh, we're going way uh, closer in time to now. The Tale of Princess Kaguya from 2013, finally by Isao Takahata. Uh, yes. I'll, I'll start off speaking about this one, too, because um, Takahata, um, this was his final film. Um, he's me- uh, he's uh, thinking about mortality. Um, Princess Kaguya, that's based on uh, a Japanese story, The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, which right there kind of shows uh, that there is something in here about men's stories versus feminist stories because the story, the star of the story is the princess, but the Japanese tale uh, named it after the bam- the poor bamboo cutter who finds her. Uh, I always liken this story, um, the tale of the bamboo cutter, to uh, English Beowulf. Not in that the stories are in any way really similar, but... Beowulf is important because it's the oldest known story that we have that's in recognizably any sort of English, which basically means it's closer to German, but what? It, it, I, I can't read the original, but anyway, that's Beowulf. Same thing with uh, with the bamboo, uh, Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, that that is the first story where Japanese people apparently say, it's written down and they say, ah, this is the oldest Japanese story that we know of. It's an interesting story. Um, probably very changed by uh, an influence of Buddhism that it has a very Buddhist message and that um, uh, the princess is going to ascend to Nirvana slash the moon that she, she is going to leave the earthly bounds. And in the original story that is seen as a positive thing to achieve Nirvana. Uh, Takahata having lived as a mortal person makes it no, if you're on earth, you're here to live life. And he makes it, I think, uh, uh, the animators rather, make it rather beautiful and and sad. And it becomes tragic that you think that you think that uh, living forever in peace and harmony and without feelings of hurt is a good thing. Well, what if living on earth in the mud, what if that is what life is all about? And and I really like that message. And, and, and the point that you're going to get to right away is it is too long. Well, and that's exactly it, because it is literally, visually, this is one of my favorites. Like, just on a purely visual level, it is a stunner of a film. And Takahata is, here for my money, I like him more as a filmmaker in terms of his focus and interest compared to Miyazaki. Yeah, okay. Surprisingly enough. But pacing has always been an issue, and I think it's one of the, the case where this film... You cut a solid half an hour bare minimum out of it and take out some of the repetitions, repetition sequences from this film. And the emotional impact that he's striving for would hit much harder than what the final version of it is. And, you know, I, I take no joy in saying it because really there is so much in this film to like uh, there. The beautiful uh, design, the music of this film is gorgeous. Uh, to listen to like it is a stunner on those levels and yet that's one of those things that just the pacing is such a problem it really does hold it back from me from being able to rank it much higher than it stands on my list uh in this sense now i keep mentioning my list i do want to make note here though folks that literally almost every film that we're talking about here is going to be a good film and the bar is set so high that when i say something's ranked like 17 on the list that's not saying it's like, oh, this is a bad film. It's just like, yeah, but 
look at the other stuff that surrounds it here uh, in this instance. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's just, yeah, the bar is set really, really high. Oh, yeah. Uh, for these things. I think uh, uh, on that vein, I think we're only going to talk. I think we're on in agreement that there's only going to be like three bad movies. I think, yeah, yeah, that, pretty, pretty. And, and I agree with you entirely. Oh, speaking of, just as before we move on, uh, the art style, yeah, that it looks um, rather like paintings on rice paper. So that is that is the very neat visual thing going on here. Like, oh, this looks. I mean, you can tell it not it is not a hundred percent. It looks like animation uh, no matter what. However, you can sort of tell like, oh, that often that the backgrounds just sort of fade to white. It looks like. They're trying for paintings on rice paper that have come to life, which is a really interesting thing to do. Well, yeah, absolutely there. And it gives, yeah, it makes it, particularly when you take a look, I mean, because the thing particularly with Miyazaki's films, like there's a very distinctive style to his work and design aesthetic that uh, is there. Uh, Takahata, you get the sense he was much more experimental. Like there, he was much less concerned with, you know, the, the consistency of vision and saying, it's like, oh, no, let's experiment. Let's see what else I can do uh, and shake things up there. So the, that, again, is one of the reasons I really appreciate him more is that you get the sense that he was never resting on his laurels as far as uh, what he was going to do. He seems to always have been looking for well, what's something different, what's something unique, uh, even if it's visual more so than necessarily story to try and do uh, with the work itself there. I agree. And, oh, hey, I, I picked out an appropriate one to talk about with Princess Kaguya. The Wind Rises, also from 2013, from Hayao Miyazaki. At the same time, uh, Takahata knew this is probably going to be my last film. At the time, which is uh, almost 10 years ago now, Miyazaki thought this was going to be his last movie. And he can't keep that promise to retire. But he, he <laughs> thought that Wind Rises was going to be. And it's not... So I, I think you have more thoughts on this than me. You talk about it. Well, it's one of those films where, like, I, I am... It's fascinating, because it's a very different film uh, for him in the sense that it's rooted in real history, in real uh, individuals, and ones that I, I have to straight up admit, I am not an expert in by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, that said, you can see, like, it's a problematic film yeah. um, in many ways. <laughs> Particularly because it, it's a film that, even if you don't know the full history and full context of it, it's a film that in many ways tries to see, it focuses on, it's like, yeah, we're building planes for war and death. But, you know, when you take it out of its context, it's still a beautiful machine. And, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Here. and it's like, well, okay, on this, in theory, yes, you're right. I can't overlook the fact that it's a machine built for the death, though, in the grand scheme of things here. And it feels like, particularly given the anti-war themes of Miyazaki's work for overall, it feels like such a weird movie in that way, yes. looking at it here. Because it's like, yeah, I'm anti-war, but planes! I love planes! I love... You know, and that's fine. It's good. I mean, I get... You know, having being fascinated with engineering and you know the mechanical beauty of what's accomplished there, it just feels really odd in this particular instance to make this film where it basically it's like, well, you know, he didn't want to build a you know planes used to kill people, but 
you know what? Uh, in this instance, he still had to do, do it there. And, you know, he wanted to strive and achieve his vision. And these were the circumstances. And that... It, I don't want to say that it, the film fully gives it a pass and says it's okay, but it is so dangerously close to that point that he might as well have been the, said that. Um, so, yeah, it's a weird one, but as a film and as a drama, it is extremely engaging uh, to, to watch there. And there is some absolutely beautiful sequences and images that Miyazaki finds in this film. Uh, even like you've, if you've seen anything from the film, you've probably seen the po the uh, one sheet poster uh, of the protagonist uh, there with his love interest and the uh, umbrella behind them, what is sitting in front of an easel. Yeah, it's a blue uh, sky, and it's a blue sky, and appropriate to the name. There's, it's a windy day, yeah. and the woman is painting. And in some of the, there's two different posters. One is it's her painting on her own, and there's another poster where it's him leaning in for a kiss, and yes. it's, it's a windy day. Yeah, um, I'll, yeah. If I can talk a bit about it too, yes. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so yeah. So this movie, it is about the the chief uh, engineer on Mitsubishi's Zero Fighters. Uh, which the the planes that are probably responsible for more allied deaths than uh, any other in the Pacific theater. And uh, to get it even more in the context, yeah. So I mentioned that uh, Miyazaki grew up rich. He grew up rich because his father and his uncle owned a company that made uh, uh, that made parts for those Mitsubishi fighters. So... His family were literally war profiteers, and that is the source of his wealth, and that is, I would draw a line even to point out to him that that is the reason that you were able to have this animation studio Ghibli. Now, like, am I condemning him for, for everything, for sins of the past? Not really. This movie, on, on top of it is about um, the historical figure who made the Zero Fighters, but... So many details are different, including like, uh, 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 Dave, like there's, there's a love story in here. Right. And the, yes. the wife gets tuberculosis, right? Yep. That didn't happen in real life. That is, yep. that is a story about Hayao Miyazaki's mom, except, except also even that wasn't tragic. Uh, um, you know, and I feel sympathy for little Hayao as well that he grew up. He was very frustrated with his mom always being sick with tuberculosis. She actually lived to a pretty old age into her seventies, but he's incorporating things of his own family into this movie. And he's kind of, I also, I pointed out like he gave the main character, his own haircut. He had in like the seventies, like the, the guy does not have a world war two. I mean, he wasn't in, he's not in the, the air force or anything, but he doesn't have a 1940s haircut. He has a Hayao Miyazaki 1970s shaggy haircut. This guy in the movie is who he thinks a whole lot of that he thinks, oh, this is a genius who works very hard. It is basically the real uh, figure combined with his dad, combined with himself. It is also a story about him and what was the value of his career in animation. <sighs> and the characters literally just say, oh, you can't blame us for the death and destruction in World War II. I was like, whoa, like, you know, I could maybe blame that no your dad like especially you built you built wealth off of this yeah i could put some blame on your dad for making parts that 
making parts that went into the Zero Fighters. And I don't want that to be the entire discussion of this movie, but like, but on a moral level that he just like, for being such a thoughtful person and a guy who knows an awful lot and is, um, very introspective on a lot of emotions and kids' emotions. Man, does he ever just brush aside the whole the whole moral argument of like you can't blame my dad for anything? It's like, no, Miyazaki, you really don't want to come to terms with what your dad and what your dad's generation did. And I, I find that kind of a, an ugly part of this movie. Well, absolutely, and this is the thing about it where it's again, you know, war is fought with weapons. Weapons are going to be built. That's you know, I mean, that's just the fact of it there uh, in this instance. And if the film was more upfront in just acknowledging, it's like, look, this is the re- in tri- there was the balance there to acknowledge. It's like, yeah, we achieved, you know, in terms of our mechanical dreams, we did achieve what we set out to do. But this is the dark side and at least try to reflect reasonably on this here. And again, I'm not looking for him necessarily to come out and say, condemn my father's generation per se in this instance but certainly being able to reflect and say no you know this is things that were done this is stuff that was done in the name of our nation as well and you know you know this is what we we did because we were at war and being able to reflect on that in a more meaningful sense uh there same thing and again same thing for any nation that goes to war i mean look i mean the united states I, I world how they ended World War II unmistakably, you know America owns that. Uh, yeah, uh, understand right there. So it's this is not a case of. But there you go. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, just yeah. But there you go. In the final moments of this movie, he's sad over the wife dying and the 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 planes all being destroyed and presumably those pilots dying. He's not sad about the Allied or the Koreans or the Chinese people who died in the war. It, I find that an ugly bit of the movie that uh, 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 speaking of America owning things, say what you will about America. They teach about World War Two and the end there. Germany, I've been to um, uh, Holocaust war memorial and, and war memorials in Germany. And I think for as much as they struggle to try to make sure every citizen there knows, Germany has, I think, made a very good commitment to try to teach the history of the world war uh, world war 2 to its citizens japan doesn't do that and this movie is indicative of i think of uh, just another uh, miyazaki is just another par- an, another artist another uh piece in this line of people who just say yeah we're not going to talk about that yeah and that's yeah that yeah. makes it a very complicated film for all of the artistry that is on display in it there and maybe we should move uh, on yeah yeah okay uh, uh oh uh someone that we have not talked about yet the secret world of arietti 2010 by uh director i just say his last name yona bayashi i'll say this really quick uh, uh Everyone, I mentioned that I read books, so I read books on uh, two books of uh, Miyazaki's um, speeches and interviews. I also read basically, if anything was available in English, uh, a fantasy novel or something, I read it. I I read over 20 books, so someone give me a gold star. I, I did a good job. But I read, uh, this is based on The Borrowers by the English author Mary Norton. And I read, uh, I read the original Borrowers book, and this is mostly an adaptation of that. And finally, uh, Yonabayashi is, um, 
he's he's basically the only Ghibli animator who did good and got under out of the thumb of Miyazaki and Takahata that he has made his own movies now, including uh, Mary and the Witch's Flower, it's called. And he has his own company, Studio Ponok. But uh, but Yonabayashi, a very talented animator. Um, this, but this was back in 2010 where he was still taking a lot of orders from Miyazaki and Miyazaki shaped this story. So guess what? Of course he would take the borrowers, the story that's supposed to be a cute story of what ha why do your keys disappear? Why do you lose hairpins and batteries and, uh, any other small thing sewing needles? Why do those things go missing? Well, it's because cute little tiny tiny people and they're not magical they're not really elves they're just tiny people ha are the borrowers they steal all that stuff of course miyazaki would take that script and decide to give the main human child a, a fatal heart condition of course he would do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's a it's a, it's a bl certainly not the and again the difference between studio G uh, ghibli and disney in a nutshell here folks um yes Kids may die. This is also one is a little bit unique for a, a couple reasons as well, because just, okay. So first of all, general impressions. I really like this movie. Uh, number 10 on my ranking list here okay. it is be beautifully animated. I think it is very moving. And while yes, the choice to bring child mortality into <laughs> the story, is certainly one that maybe doesn't necessarily mean you should show it to younger kids, save it for when they're a little bit older here. Uh, I think it handles it very, very well overall. But this is also a case, while I watch uh, in pretty much every case the original Japanese language tracks, this is one of those cases where oh, there yeah. are two dubs to this movie here uh, in this instance. And uh, one was, yes, a Disney dub uh, that exists uh, in this case. With here, American actors, which is and it has... Will Arnett and, sorry, who is he married to uh, from Saturday Night Amy Live? Poehler. Amy Poehler, which is a yeah. very cute idea because at the time they were married and they play the borrowers, uh, the husband and wife. Yes. Yes, and that's, exactly. and that's about the only cute thing about that American cast. But there's an English English cast as well, and who's the star of the human yep. boy, yeah. Yeah, in that case, uh, how would it happen to be one Tom Holland who had Disney known while <laughs> where things were going probably would have made sure that the Holland dub made its way uh, into North America instead. I can't blame them for a hindsight there, but it just fascinates me that, yeah, there are two completely different English dubs of this movie, and not in the same way as we see with some of the earlier films, where it's because different studios release different versions, and they produce tracks at different times in this instance. Like, these were produced basically concurrently to one another. I uh, don't know. I don't know instance. why that happened. Yeah, and a, a very... And a very funny thing, um, so I have mostly um, Disney discs of these movies, so I have the American dub there, and it's, I'm sure it's fine, it's not spectacular, I listen to the uh, Japanese dub, but on Netflix, and I'm assuming the current, uh, the newer G-Kids uh, Blu-ray disc, uh, they have the Tom Holland version, so I think everyone has recognized, we'll keep the, it's it's an English-English story, so I think people have recognized keep the... Uh, the UK uh, dub of it going forward, but I find that interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely there. So yeah. So I mean, not much to say, I think maybe beyond that. I mean, it's a fun film. It's a good film. Uh, just, yeah. Older kids save it for them, <laughs> them here. Uh, unless you want that, uh, you know, three hour conversation explaining to a toddler, 
what is the concept of death? And yes, why do kids die? Um, <laughs> you know, I think if I showed that to um, definitely to my daughter, who's who's on the younger side, I don't think like she would pick up that the ending is like they're being sad. I don't know if she would pick up on the fact that he's saying that I'm going in for surgery. The doctors think I'm probably going to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, she wouldn't, she, my daughter would not pick up on that, but, but yeah, but we should move on. We keep moving. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the TV movies, ocean waves from 1993, a person who we're not going to really talk about again. Uh, Mochizuki, uh, a hired hand. This was produced. It started as a manga, Manga, manga. People, people can roast me for yeah. my pronunciation. Um, it started as as a comic, and um, they picked on it to adapt as a more cheaper uh, TV special. And guess what? Wouldn't you know it? Ghibli are such perfectionists. They went over budget. Um, it's it's. <laughs> this is a very good for for early '90s and sort of like you know sort of that pop bright lights version of what you want the '90s to look back. This looks good. Oh, you really like the music, don't you? Yeah, I love the music on this one. I, in fact, I went ahead and uh, basically bought the soundtrack. This thing. It is I didn't even know there was a soundtrack really... available for this. Wow. Okay. I yeah, I found it on uh, iTunes. At least it was available in Canada a, a while back. It is a really, really great score, which is important because this is a really, really boring and not terribly good movie uh, overall. Here, like, yeah, visually it's great, but this is like. Just a nothing. Uh, yeah, let's do it fast. Of, uh, uh, it, it's yeah. towards the bottom. It's not my absolute worst. It's close to the bottom of my list too. And because I don't, yeah. I don't know what they saw the appeal in this story because it's all about a. Uh, uh, it's through the eyes of a, a teenage boy, and there's this pretty girl. And of course, it's a romance. Uh, romance. <laughs> it's of course it's a romance, and. Um, She's acting so weird, and you learn out through uh, the course of the story that most of her frustrations are just based on the fact that her parents are divorcing. But she is an awful human being at every turn, and you get to the end of the movie, and it's very funny because there's a moment where he's um, he's a college student now, he's talking to his friends, and he starts having flashbacks to reasons why he might have a crush on this girl, and they're all terrible. They're all moments where she's this horrible person, and he's like, yeah, I guess I did think that she was cute and all that. But, but she's an awful human being, and it's so funny. Well, and that's the thing. It's it's like, I see what you're trying to do, movie, but it doesn't work because, yeah, it just it's impossible to care about these relationships and the situations. But, yeah, she puts him through throughout this. Like, you know... They're, it's not criminal, but they're like absurd on a level. She basically that steals like, money from him for one thing. Yeah, well, yeah, and then he like forces him basically to like chaperone her on a uh, journey to a city, uh, another city there, which you know, you know, they have to get a hotel and something. Like, there's so much stuff that goes on here where it's like I'm really again. I understand cultural differences. I have a hard time believing. Though that accounts for, you know, things that people just sort of accept. It's like, well, no, this is perfectly fine and rational for everybody in this instance here. Like, it just, it does not add up as a movie. And it's certainly, I agree, it's not the worst one on the list. It's that number 21 here. There's two much, or ones that are worse than it. But yeah, it's it's bad, but it's also not terribly interesting 
But get your hands on that score, folks. Really, it is great. Um, Here's the winner. Uh, <laughs> heavy, heavy stuff to talk about. Grave of the Fireflies, 1988 by Isao Takahata. Uh, the first thing to talk about this one is that the weirdest, wildest thing is that this was part of a double feature with uh, Totoro. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you yeah. can watch one and watch the other. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Eh, yeah. I'll talk about, you know, and th there's a lot to talk about, but maybe just do the overview because it is based on a story. I didn't write, I didn't write down who the author was. I read, I read an English translation of the story, by the way, and it is also, as you can expect, sad. Um, the author uh, lived through uh, the fire bombings in uh, World War II, and he actually had two sisters who uh, uh, died in the course of his. One, basically, I'll... I'll I'll uh, tell everyone, like, basically, um, his, one of his sisters uh, died um, from starvation. Um, and and sort of that is kind of represented in this movie. And it's very interesting. It's what Takahata, Takahata also, uh, I, I mentioned, like, oh, he was, he grew up rich. Well, I mean, he did have to survive um, the fire bombings. His family nearly died uh, during that as well. So... They suffered a lot of hardships. So him and the author sort of bonded over that commonality. And also he was drawn to the fact that um, in this story, which is it is not 100 percent true to life because the author uh, uh, survived uh, uh, to adulthood. Um, he was saying that in all of the stories of Japanese kids through the war, he said uh, Takahata said that it was always that these kids were rising to the occasion. And he said, you know. That wasn't always true. Some people and some kids did not rise to meet the threat of like, uh, and I'm not talking about the war, uh, fighting in the war or anything. I'm talking about for their own survival or for helping others or what have you. And that's kind of what this movie is about. It's here's just a snapshot. This some things like this definitely happened. And uh, here are two kids and what if everything does not work out well? Yeah. And it's, it's, it, it is the biggest bummer on the flip side. There are moments where they tried and like the kids have some fun. Like, it's like, of course they're going to have a day at the beach because they don't have the school. The school's burned down. What if the big brother takes his little sister to the beach one day? Like things like that just happened. And you see happiness and ultimately ending in like, if, if things had just gone a little bit different, maybe they would have survived, but these kids do not. Well, and he, here's the thing. It is unmistakably an absolutely gorgeous and beautifully made film yeah, yeah. there. And I 100% understand how, why people react to it the way they did. The thing I will say about this, and this is the thing to know about going into Grave of the Fireflies. It's one of those films that I, for me personally, suffered... I don't want to say from overhype because the the thing you will generally hear from most people about this film is that it moves them to tears and is emotionally devastating. And I think this is probably my problem and not a problem of the movies. I have heard that so many times yeah, there okay. that I felt like I was maybe emotionally steeled myself up way too much to have the impact for it because it was like I was expecting the gut punch the whole way through and I sort of uh, uh, secured myself for it. So 
what I don't want to do is, is set that thing up there because I feel it's that that's unfair to the film instance because it is an extraordinarily good movie there. And I cognitively recognize all the things it does extremely well. I just didn't have that same emotion. And I, and I really do feel though, that this is one of those rare cases where that has absolutely nothing to do with the film and more about the reputation that's built up and how that sort of seeps into your brain. So if you know very little about this movie, other than what we've just said, you're probably fine. Uh, in this instance, I just wouldn't go too much further in doing any research or reading about it or seeing too many other reviews because that might prime you, uh, in a way that will put you at a disadvantage when watching this movie. Yeah. Okay. And I say, okay, like, like I'm brushing it off, but like, no, I, I, I agree and totally understand. Hey, we've got another Takahata. This is 1999. Uh, so 11 years later, uh, my neighbors, the Yamadas, this is based yep. on a comic strip and, uh, a very cute, unique art style all its own where, um, uh, uh, for his last film, uh, Princess Kaguya, it was like white backgrounds and it looked like uh, paintings. This one, the idea is it looks kind of like the comic strip and uh, the backgrounds are just sort of fade away into white nothingness, sort of like how, you know, like if you look at a, if you look at a peanuts, not the backgrounds are often just not there. And it's a lot of little, a lot of little cute vignettes, which is its strength. And also uh, we can say pretty quickly is also its problem because it is just a bunch of little uh, stories, some of them very amusing, like losing uh, what happens when you lose uh, your daughter at the mall. And, you, and then you forgot about her like, oh, no. And there's just lots of little things. And there's an overall theme. There is not an overall plot to this one. And it's just cute. Well, and that's like, you know, it's absolutely light and fluffy in a way. But my the things I will say about this, uh, when it c comes to this film here, uh, this is absolutely a case where uh takahata is, you know i would say the pacing uh works much better because he does not overstretch and overstay its welcome there uh by uh, unlike uh uh his latter uh, i could actually i could argue because this one is actually two hours i could argue it could lose it could stand to lose some weight but i i yeah it, it i i can get your point yeah yeah, well, it's the thing. Yeah, apparently it runs about 104 minutes in length altogether there. And it does, again, I think part of it because it does have that vignette style and because it's, again, very light, very charming and often really, really funny. Uh, it's easier to go with it, uh, even if it does maybe stretch on a little bit longer. It, the weight isn't quite there that makes it feel that sort of runs you down after a while. But no, I absolutely agree. Like it is a delightful, charming film. Very slight, unquestionably. I, I won't say it's, you know, you know, the absolute high point of their, the work that comes out of the studio, but definitely an enjoyable one. And yeah, one I would say that, uh, particularly again, if it's going to be an entry point to Ghibli for you, that's one absolutely that would work as well. Here's one. That's not tales from earth. Sea by, <laughs> 2006 by Hayao son Goro Miyazaki before talking oh about my. before talking about the movie I want to tell my uh, uh, one more great anecdote so yeah. um there uh, if you see any of the special features they're always in the same in the same movie theater uh to uh screen their films they have the whole staff over there and uh Hayao Miyazaki watches the film he walks out someone we don't know who but it was obviously someone who was recording this someone asks Hayao uh, what do you think of your son's film? And he says, I thought my son was a man. He is not. 
He is a child. That's all. <sighs> what an epic, what an incredible burn to give to your son. Oh my goodness. This is the thing. I, I will say this. Look, the two worst films produced by Studio Ghibli or Ghibli are by Goro. Yeah. Here. I'm not going to pretend <laughs> yeah. that they're not. But look, let me be clear. I also, the one thing that I've learned after, after this whole year is that Goro has my deepest sympathies because oh, yeah. I cannot imagine having Heo as a father based on every comment and behavior he exhibits on the special features, comments he's made in the press. Like, it is just like, this guy seems like, I cannot imagine that he was much of a father based on everything he's done. And look, I understand that you don't want, you know... You know, I, you know, parents to some degree need to be honest with their children and say it's like, you know, there are things you can improve or areas or areas you might struggle in, but there are constructive and you know good ways to conduct that in this instance. Yes. There, this <laughs> Hail Miyazaki finds the worst way every single time <laughs> to express uh, his feelings towards his son, and that's why I'm constantly rooting for Goro. Like I keep, yeah, it's like, you're right. It's just it's like, I know you're probably never going to be your father in terms of artistic achievement, but I salute you. I want you to succeed one of these days, if only just to put your dad in his place for one moment here. And, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Uh, 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 on on the movie, uh, I agree with you entirely. Poor Goro, but also, yeah, you know, it's setting up he's going to be the next hand probably when especially especially when Toshio Suzuki um retires or dies Goro Miyazaki is going to be the next whatever it's called CEO president what have you he's going to be the guy in charge and he'll probably be good at managing projects and toys and things he'll probably do better at that job than he would as a director cuz that's not his yeah. that is not his strength or a or a storyteller unfortunately um, uh, really quickly on this story itself, based on the Earthsea books. So I went ahead, I read the entire, all six of the Earthsea books. Uh, some people think that they are uh, one of the best uh, fantasy series, a response to the Lord of the Rings, uh, where Lord of the Rings is all land and it's all um, English and uh, German and Christian uh, things all, all put together. Here it's kind of... Uh, uh, a different direction and it's almost entirely based around oceans which this movie doesn't even accurately accurately represent because they get off the ocean pretty fast um uh, by ursula Le Guin. man does goro start it off in a bad way right off the bat because he has the main character basically the luke skywalker kill his murder his father in like the second scene <laughs> And that is not in any of the books. That does not have. So uh, I don't know why I would really ask him like, well, why did you start like this? Making us just hate your main character. And he kills basically an innocent man, his father. And it goes downhill from there. Um, all, all the interesting uh, Earthsea books are not my, are not my favorite, but Le Guin had a lot of interesting ideas and Goro basically throws most of those away. Which is too bad. And oh, my final bit. Guess what? So in the Earthsea books, almost none of the characters are white, which is one of the which is one of the really interesting and admirable things about this um, uh, 
baby is she baby boomer or was she um of the generation before anyway this this english this white english lady who decided you know what she noticed she noticed like 40 years early that lord of the rings is awfully white i'm going to make some fantasy books where basically no one is white and guess what they do in this movie only only the Obi-Wan Kenobi character who's like the main the main star of the books uh Sparrowhawk the, the he's a wiz- he's Gandalf he's Obi-Wan Kenobi he's got the lightest of tans all of these characters are supposed to be either uh black or brown and Ghibli and Goro Miyazaki decided not to do that which sort of brings up the whole point like that was that was in the text which also brings up the fact that they could have done for a lot of these movies that they could have had uh different skinned characters and uh, different ethnic characters and that's an ongoing discussion in anime where uh people say like well japan doesn't have dark-skinned people like that which which is not true that is that that is first off that is definitely not true there are a lot of different ethnicities in japan and secondly like uh, also you can do fantasy novels they could have made a decision to to do something else and ghibli has has almost entirely not done that so uh, which is Another criticism you can add to Ghibli, I think, oh, especially it's in the text and Goro Miyazaki just and his team just ignored it. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. I, like there's not really my, the best thing I can say is that a it's not the worst film he's directed. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit there, but it's certainly at best. This is mediocre at best. Oh, I think it's there. worse. I think it's worse than mediocre. It's it's a big waste of time. Um uh, I actually disagree. When we get to I know what you think is his worst one. I think this is his worst one. This is my least favorite uh movie in Ghibli and we'll leave it there. We'll keep rolling right along. What do yeah. we got now? Oh, we got Goro again from Up on Poppy Hill 2011 and this is like his best movie and it's it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, no, it's a slice of life uh, film and very much sort of a YA uh, style story, but he does it incredibly well uh, in this instance. I think maybe that's one of the other thing. I don't know whether fantasy is really Goro's interest uh, there, which is curious because, again, we don't have enough of a wide sample of his work uh to really be determined, does he have a particular thematic interest in the same way that his father does necessarily? But he feels much more at home uh, working in this sort of slice of life, uh, basically light comedy vein uh, in terms of this being there. And again, the stakes are incredibly low in this movie, uh, all things considered, given that it's basically, uh, at the end of the day, the big crux of this film is, can we save the school clubhouse that we have here from being torn down? Uh, combined there? combined with a romance, can these two teens uh, get together? But in sort of Back to the Future style, like you could you could sort of make fun of it, like with with, with possible incest. <laughs> but yeah. it, it it all turns out okay in the end. That's not what's happening. But like that yeah. that is the that is the other big problem. Is like. Wait a second. These kids. The, the point is, these kids. Uh, the the boy is unsure of his parentage, and he has to, because of wars and things, he has to figure that out. And it is revealed to them as like, oh wait, we can't have a relationship. But that's it's pretty funny outside to to talk about like that. That's what this is about. 
Let's go. Let's yeah. keep on going. Uh, Whisper yeah. of the Heart, 1995 by Yoshifumi Kondo. I think oh, you you are the big the big lover of this one, I believe. Yeah, I really... It's number four on my ranking list. I really, really like this movie uh, there. I think, again, it's mostly a... Sl- the poster for this thing is deceptive uh, there. Because if you've seen a particular... I, I'm assuming that mostly it's the North American poster. You see, like, a cat... Uh, you know, in a humanoid body with a top hat there, and you think, oh, it's sort of a magical fantasy film, this thing, but no, it's really a slice of life story for the most part with a light fantasy, with a story that's being told by the protagonist here, that is fantasy that's nested within this one here. Um, but this is what, like, I, like, everything about this film works for me. I, the design of the film is gorgeous. The character work is beautiful and nuanced and detailed, and I like these characters. I am invested in seeing how things work out for them uh, in this. It's like really the only complaint I have about it is that the, the closing moments are maybe just a little too much uh, at the day there. But this is, yeah, just a very, you know... Two characters meeting, becoming interested, and sort of getting wrapped up in personal histories as part of this and acts of creativity. It is real, and it's all about basic. If you haven't seen it, there, uh, one girl finds out that another boy that she keeps running into is apparently taking out the same books that she's taken out from the library uh, each and every time, which sort of creates this fascination uh, on her part. But well, what's going on with this? Uh, in this case, and it spirals from there. And but yeah, it's like I just I find this such an engrossing film. And again, that's the thing about uh, uh, Takahata uh, in this instance here. Where... I'm sorry. Well, but this is well, it's not Takahata. Oh, sorry, not Takahata. So yeah, yeah this sorry, is the, the director is Yoshifumi Kondo, and uh, Miyazaki really. I don't know how much they collaborated because like Miyazaki dictated a lot of what would be in this movie as well. Yeah. Do you yeah. want me to get into real quick? I think it's a yeah. very charming movie as well. So it's partly it's a teen romance, but even more than that, it's about a couple of kids who are trying to figure out what are we going to do with our futures? And they sort of, yeah. uh, the, uh, the problem doesn't become, can we be a couple? The problem becomes, well, what am I going to do with my future and how serious am I about things? And, you know, just these big emotions that a kid might have wondering, what am I going to do after high school? Uh, on the the downside, Yoshifumi Kondo, he was, he was one of the other, one of the most talented people working at Ghibli. And uh, something that I haven't really brought up yet is that, uh, but back to Takahata, Takahata was not an animator himself. He did not basically draw. So he relied on other people. The person he relied on most of all was Kondo, and Miyazaki did sometimes as well, but they basically abused the poor man, uh, yeah. um, making him work all hours, telling him his work was like like they they berated him too, like like that's not good enough, do it all over, like even though like you know he's their best guy, this was his one uh, time he got to direct, and Miyazaki is still it, this is Miyazaki uh, having an interest in this story, and dictating what the what the whole script will be. Uh, Kondo would uh, refuse to work with Takahata again. He wasn't too happy about uh, uh, Miyazaki anymore either. He kept on coming to work, was getting sick. Um, he died of an aneurysm. Like and and those other guys and everyone at the staff recognized that he worked himself to death. 
Yeah. And and that was uh, the uh, one of the other jokes is uh, Miyazaki keeps on saying, oh, I'm going to retire. And then he he can't. He keeps on coming back. That was the first time he considered retiring. And yeah, but but everyone uh, like they make it a maybe a joke. They they make it almost a joke, like saying, like, hey, Takahata, you basically worked him to death, didn't you? And he goes, ha Yeah. Like, what a miserable thing to say. So I wish I wish that would have been such a. um a better ending for this director condo. Uh, he was, he's was his specialty was, um, real life, including cities and also, um, getting, uh, characters to look more realistic and having more real, uh, facial expressions than like Miyazaki would do. So that's, yeah. that's why, uh, I'm sorry. That's why, uh, this movie whisper of the heart, but also, um, the one you like, um, uh, only yesterday, like the faces look more real. They look less anime and they look more real in that movie. That's because Kondo and that's because Takahata is hovering over Kondo, telling him to draw the face again, draw the face again throughout all of Whisper of the Heart as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like I said, yeah, this is the dark side of Jubilee that often gets sort of swept under the rug in this case. And that's the unfortunate case. This is. You know, again, it is hands down one of the best films they ever produced at the studio. Was it worth a man losing his life over? No. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, it certainly wasn't just this film there. This was a year. Yeah, he well, well he, he well, you know, this was years in the making. And Kondo, he died um, a year or two years after. I forget. Uh, soon after this. But yeah, he didn't die on this production. It was it was. Uh, I, I picked up the next one. Well, how appropriate. I picked up the next one. Princess Monokoke, 1997, by uh, directed by Miyazaki. And yeah, this was the last one Kondo uh, did the characters for. And then he died during the production of this one. But Dave, I think you have I think you have a strong reaction to Princess Monokoke, which, by the way, everyone, that Monokoke, they're meaning like monsters. So there are two main characters. Often there are, there's a boy and a girl, uh, the main characters. But uh, there, there's a uh, young man and there's a girl. And the girl has been also everyone. It's it's. They're taking ideas from like the Jungle Book and Tarzan, which again, which again, Miyazaki would hate to be pointed that out to. She has been raised by wolves, some of them kind of magical, in the same way that uh, Mowgli was raised by wolves in the Jungle Book. It is a strong movie. It is one that I think is probably, again, in terms of its North American release, this one was particularly notable because... It wasn't exactly released by Disney per se. I mean, yes, they owned the studio that released this one, but this was the one that Miramax uh, released at that point in time. And it had an English language translation done by uh, the, the script for that was written by one Neil Gaiman there. Uh, I think somebody who, if he wasn't well known at the time, and he was, um, I think people certainly know about him now. Yeah, that's very uh, that's very interesting. I will say I think that um I think when you talk about Miramax, I think this was the last of uh, people might know some old stories that yeah, that Ghibli did used to have to work with um have to. They made a decision to work with uh Harvey Weinstein before they got into the Disney deal. I think this was the last of the pre-Disney deals. I think oh, okay. I, I think that's what it was. So, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, I, I I think I forgot about that Neil Gaiman did the adaptation. But yeah, and so like, if everyone, if you want to find a picture of Miyazaki standing around in New York next, uh, standing next to uh, Harvey Weinstein, 
there's a picture of that for you if, if you have any interest. But I, I think a lot of people are also familiar with the story of uh, uh, Weinstein was always uh, on about cutting out scenes. And yeah, and yeah this th- uh, not this movie, but one of them. Uh, Miyazaki sent him a sword, which like, hey, that's a that's a nice gift, and he knew that like, of course, an American is gonna love like a samurai style sword. He sends him a sword, uh, uh, and on it is written no cuts. So, yeah. yeah, that that was yeah. So Princess Monokoke, uh, eventually another dub would be done with uh, Disney years later, but yeah, but this was one of the last of them that they worked on with uh, Miramax. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a much more adult film in certain ways uh, in terms of, like, the blood and the gore is definitely amped up uh, compared mm. to this one's, And this is definitely not the as family-friendly uh, as some of the other ones are in this instance. I would say, again, I know there's many people who hold this one near and dear to their hearts there. I think it is a bit overlong, Uh in okay. this instance, and, I, and I, I do also think that it's one of those cases where, again, this is where you can start to see, a, you know, a lot of Miyazaki sort of repeating uh, his tropes. It, it becomes very noticeable uh, at this point in time because you can see a lot of what was in things like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind definitely cropping back you, up in this You're definitely one. right about that, that... Um... I like this movie more than you do, I think. However, I do recognize it's basically um, the main thrust of it is a Nausicaa 2.0. It's another reworking of that kind of story and those themes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. And like My interest lies more with Nausicaa. I think that one's the stronger film. But I understand why people react to this film and why they enjoy it there. Uh, and again, there are certainly some gorgeous sequences in this film as well, which I mean is, you could say that even about some, almost every other film in this thing, save one, um, there are gorgeous sequences in pretty much everything at some point there. But yeah, uh, it, again, a really strong movie, but it doesn't it doesn't even quite crack my top 10. I, I put it at number 11 uh, on my list here. Okay. So, uh, but, uh, I will go to a new movie. I picked out, this is the one movie that is, uh, it's it's not even top craft. It's not uh, Ghibli at all. Uh, Lupin Third Castle of Cagliostro, I just threw in here from 1979. Everyone, I really enjoy this movie. Um, I think I've mentioned it on my podcast before. If uh, you've heard that name, Lupin Third, and you're like, well, what's this cartoon about? I'll tell you the secret. There are a lot of bad Lupin cartoons and movies. It is not always good. Um, this I would consider a lot of people consider um, one of the the best. I think it's the best. It is also it is uh, the most kid friendly because Lupin is also supposed to be uh, very much a womanizer. And in this movie, uh, you can see you see the the gag partly is is that a teenage girl will sometimes hug him and stuff, and he's like he gets the shivers. He's like, no, no, I'm not. I am not going to romance you at all. The whole point is I'm trying to rescue you, princess. I I threw it in here mainly because even though it's not a Ghibli movie and Miyazaki, not that he, not that I think that he hates it, but because it's not him it because it's, it, it was, it was a job that it was an opportunity that he got with characters that he was getting sick of. And that's why he made them as kid friendly and as uh, different as, as he could. But I think, I honestly think this is still one of his best movies and it's just a very fun adventure movie where, you're going through a castle and there's lots of twists and turns 
to to end up rescuing a princess and why he's rescuing a princess. It's pretty fun. So if you see it, uh, it went off Netflix like this year. If you can find it someplace, I would still recommend Lupin the Third, Castle of Cagliostro. It's it's one of my favorite Miyazaki movies. Yeah, I didn't put it on my ranking list because it wasn't one of the official films. Aaron predates the studio itself, but it's a it's a fun romp of a movie there, absolutely. And I think uh, I I don't know where I would honestly rank it uh, overall, but I would say it's certainly particularly because it does predate Miyazaki, you know, getting full control and getting to indulge his own particular interests uh, to his heart's content. I think that ends up making it very unique and refreshing uh, compared to some of what he did there, where you start to notice the tropes there because he's having to work with other people's material uh, and doesn't necessarily get final say on everything. It ends up giving it a much different flavor uh, from everything else. And yeah, I would agree with you. I'm not a, a, like I have not seen that much Lupin uh, other than the stuff you sent me this year yeah, okay. to watch in this instance there. Uh, but I would certainly say, yeah, no, it's an absolutely fun adventure film and well worth your time seeking out for yeah. sure. By the way, everyone, the this movie did not uh, make its budget back in theaters because there were, the Lupin TV show was still on TV. And the movie before this one, uh, Mystery of Mamo, another Lupin movie, is is pretty bad so i think people didn't come out to see this movie the failure of this movie along with uh little nemo adventures in slumberland if you've ever seen that that's another uh tms tms movie the failure of those two movies put that company tms into bad financial straits they had to go to america and say we will animate shows for you the failure of Castle of Cagliostro and uh, Slumberland is why TMS started working for Disney on DuckTales. What else? Uh, uh, Batman, the animated series, Superman, um, Tiny Toons, and uh, Animaniacs. That's why those uh, 90s uh, movies were done over at TMS, and they look so good. And and when they were... I I said this uh, when we were talking about real Ghostbusters at Halloween. When they got financially in the black again... Then they said goodbye to America with uh, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, and they haven't looked back since. Everything now is always uh, Lupin, uh, also uh, a cartoon character called Detective Conan that I also enjoy, my wife enjoys. Uh, uh, They have their own properties, and they have not looked back at North America since. Anyway, but uh, just just if you want to know, hey, why if you go back and look, why does Batman the animated series look so good? Like, or or why does this one episode, like the Clayface episode, why does the Clayface episode with the transformations look so darn good? The answer is TMS. Well, absolutely. Uh, and speaking of Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker, uh, stay tuned, film strips fans, for 2023 that may be coming up. Um, so. Yay. Yep, so, no, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, there. I will get yep. to a next movie. It's another Miyazaki joint. 2004, Howl's Moving Castle. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Dave? I, it's probably Miyazaki's worst, and I know that's going to get me some flack. Um, you know what? Because, you know what? Yeah. Uh, before he passed away, I, again, I, I'm friends with some people. I, I was um, uh, sort of internet friends with David Weiss the uh, head writer of the original Ninja Turtles cartoon show. And he once told me, uh, he he has met Miyazaki. Well, he did meet Miyazaki a few times. He went over to um, the Ghibli Museum and its offices. He told me, this is Miyazaki's worst. So you're you're in agreement with uh, David Weiss, uh, the writer of Ninja Turtles cartoons. 
the narrative of the film, it's just, I just don't care about it. Like, there's nothing that really grips you or gets you invested in it. The characters aren't really all that interesting uh, in the grand scheme of things. And a lot of this film works on kind of arbitrary logic. Like, things happen because they either need to happen or because we say so in this instance. And again, it's Miyazaki returning to anti-war sentiment once again, but it's like, it is the most clunky execution uh, of his anti-war themes that in any of the movies he's done here. And that's including The Wind Rises, which if you remember, just going back a little while ago, we were very clear about the complexities of that one, uh, yeah. to say the least um, here. Uh, Wind Rises, because it's a real, it well, it's the real world and it's ostensibly a slice of history. That is more problematic. This is a worse movie than that. Uh, everything you just said there about it being clunky and all that, and that's Miyazaki. That's not in the novel. I've read um, all the Howl novels by Diana Wynne-Jones. I, I rather enjoy them. Um, they're, they're, I don't perfectly love them, but there's interesting ideas that Miyazaki threw away. And he threw away the ending and that whole business about the war. Like, at the end of this movie, it involves some time travel. It involves a scarecrow just turning back into human for... And you don't really understand why. The time travel isn't in the book and there's a much better thing that happens in it. And the thing about the scarecrow is explained in the novel. Yeah, so uh, I think he uh, mucked around with this uh, story... Like as it starts, it starts out everyone. It starts out with a uh, fun hook in that there's a teenage uh, girl who is cursed by a witch to look like an old woman and feel like an old woman. So she just sort of goes off and says, "Well, everyone says that this wizard named Howell is evil. At the same time, I can't think of anyone else who might be able to give me magical advice on how to get back to normal. So I'm gonna go find him." And that's the start of the movie, and then uh, that that's the start of the novel. The movie kind of goes off the rails pretty fast. Uh, they don't even explain uh, the, the fire, the living fire, Calcifer. They don't explain his deal as well as it does in the book. And so, yeah, so I would just say this is a definite case where I prefer the book to uh, the movie. It's got more interesting ideas, and it explains things better. If you want to make the case that it's a bad movie from Miyazaki... Yeah, I would be willing to listen to that. I, I think there's just enough there to keep it from being absolutely terrible, but not much uh, there. It, um, as as always, he can't make a bad-looking film, so it looks good. It's got yeah. uh, some some of the great... Uh, another great score by Joe Hisashi, who does pretty much all his scores. But yeah, so not, not a fan of the story, or at least where the story ends up. A new movie, yeah. and we've got uh, a, a different director again. When Marnie was there from 2014. This is, is this the, no, this is not the latest one. This is the latest theatrical uh, film by Yonabayashi again, the man who uh, Miyazaki's pupil and did a lot of uh, animation for him and finally went off to do other things. This is based on another English novel. Uh, this movie's not very good. <laughs> No, it's, yeah, it's close to the bottom of my rankings. It's better of an ocean wave uh, in this instance there in the sense that I think there's a more, at least thematically interesting story, the actual execution and the events that happen. It's also too are, long. If it was an hour yeah. and a half, I wouldn't be as mad at it, but it's it's another one that's like two hours. And, eh. Oh, th I read this book too. This one was confusing to me because I don't, well, not the plot. I, I get it. 
I'm confused as to what uh, Miyazaki and Yonabayashi saw in this story because I don't this this um, uh, the novel. It feels like it was written in like the 40s or 30s or 20s. I th- and it's much more recent than that. It's it's not a particularly old book, and it's not very fun or interesting or have interesting things to say. So, yeah, I don't I don't know what I don't know what's what they uh, saw in that story. Well, and that's just it. I mean, it's it's bog standard, you know, children's lit tropes at the end of the day. Like, it's not even like there's not even a novel spin on them in this instance where you could sit there and say it's like, well, okay, you know, it's it's something old, but they've got this little tweak that might make it interesting. No, it's literally just the tropes uh, being dragged through and you will figure out the game that's going on with the story long before yes uh you finally do all the reveals quote unquote hit there so you're really just sort of tediously waiting for it it's like let's just get this over with please um for sure speaking so, of getting yeah. it over with a uh, one that not i don't i don't think you hate this one but i remember like like i this is here's one where i think i like it more than you do palm poco from 1994 from takahata um i'll say uh so these are this is a ra- about tanuki the raccoon dogs and I say, like, um, speaking of video games before, if you're a fan of Super Mario Brothers 3 and you ever wanted to know, hey, what's like, like, that was a weird part of our childhood, right? That like Super Mario Brothers 3, why does he turn into a raccoon? Why can why can raccoons fly? Raccoons do not fly. This movie would like unlock that like, oh, this is what Tanuki do in Japanese mythology. And it's a story of that. It's a story of. And what I like about it is you can see it several different ways as um, literally about Tanuki being uh, 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 having no environment left, that that Tokyo and suburbs are expanding into the hills and these poor animals don't have a place to forage for food anymore. So now they're living on trash and you've killed most of them. You can also see it as a loss of traditional, uh, uh, as a metaphor for... Um, humans for people who um did not live in major japanese urban centers and now um, the cities have expanded into their areas and their old way of life is gone their economy is ruined and so these people who used to be you know farmers and uh, other things in uh, on the you know on the rural areas of japan now by the end of the movie they've got to live in the urban centers and act like they've always been Tokyo residents, even though they, they can remember a generation ago. No, I used to live in a totally different way. Well, here's the thing. It is a really good movie overall. And I agree with absolutely everything you say. I think my issue with it, it comes down to the fact that it's got a real repetitive structure to it. Yes. Where basically, you know, we see basically the same sequence of events you know, repeating different variations. And I will admit, there are a lot of amusing and interesting and unique sequences that play out throughout it there. But at a certain point, again, it's that thing of, it's like, well, okay, we've seen this play out several times. I don't think it's going to play out any differently than it did the last time. And it doesn't really. Yeah. Uh, uh, same complaint as, as we've said before for some. Um, it's also just too long. Like, it wouldn't repeat yeah. so much if... You didn't you you didn't need all those segments like that. Speaking of which, Takahata is kind of interesting to me because this one is a clear example. Yamada's is probably the biggest example. Even uh, only yesterday, where it's a woman reminiscing about her past, and so there is a there is a through line there with that story. But she's telling all these recollections of her past that don't always you know they're little vignettes. 
Takahata loves doing that. He loves, here is a little story, a vignette, and he might drive to a larger point, and this movie is one example where he does, but he just loves, you know, here's a five-minute story, here's a ten-minute story, and just constructing a movie out of a bunch of basically shorts, and that was, it's interesting to me to realize that that was his style, that he made, Miyazaki made a movie uh, made a movie that had a plot, a, a a a whole arc. Takahata made movies that were made up of shorts, basically, and this is one of the biggest examples. Well, absolutely, and I know that this one is deeply beloved by many, and I completely get where it's coming from. Uh, why people love it the way they do there, I just again, I think it is a really, really good film. I just don't love it as much as others and i think yeah that structure and that style there are times when and we'll get to uh, my favorite takahata film there and i eat my favorite uh studio ghibli film very uh at some uh point here soon uh where i think that works perfectly in its favor here i just think yeah about 20 minutes out of this movie and i would say i'd be completely on board with everybody and why they love it absolutely here is, this is one of the most important ones to talk about, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind from 1984, yeah. from Miyazaki again. This started out as a very long-form comic that he was drawing. I've read the whole comic. It goes beyond what the ending of the movie is, and I think it was better to stop where the movie stops, because he keeps on getting bigger and bigger, and... and it's like, okay, you're trying to say these grand things about humanity and, and the environment, where I think everything is encapsulated perfectly in this movie. It's a post-apocalyptic world, and people are, are and uh, people are trying to survive. And there's this poisonous area, and there are monsters, and then the realization that, wait a second, um, maybe this poisonous area serves even a purpose in the environment, and maybe the monsters aren't so monstrous. Maybe the real monster are humans. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, it really is like thematically, this is basically, you know, Miyazaki laying out what all his interests are. And I think I put this on number six on my list. And I think it is still one of the strongest things. It is a very good movie. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, I love the design of this film. I love the animation, particularly of the giant slug looking creatures there and the way like there's something about such a painterly quality to the color of this film as well that is just breathtaking to take a look at there uh one scene on screen plus the score to this thing is amazing again i'm a sucker for 80s uh scores mm. in general uh but this one like i feel is like just a perfect uh marriage of sound and uh visual in this instance so i really really dig it and again there's just an energy to this one because it's so early on and because you get the feeling that this was Miyazaki feeling. It's like, no, I have, th this is my chance to make my big impression. Yes. Uh, right now there, that this, I think works in a way that the others sometimes feel like they're just drowning under the weight of his perfectionism, uh, to some degree. Here. Mm, there's a thought. Yeah. Also, uh, really quick. Uh, it is, it is, a uh, one of the best movies. Absolutely. I agree. Um, also some of the costumes show up in the later legend of Zelda games again. And, uh, the basically the Gandalf character he rides on uh, a very large basically a chicken and yeah. that would show up for people who play Final Fantasy games chocobos basically come from this movie so if you play <laughs> some, if you play some video games you look at watch Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind because 
oh, Final Fantasy took these from there here. But anyway, that's that's a neat thing. I will grab a new movie. Read the comic, too. It's a good comic if you can get it from the library or if it's digitally available somewhere. Oh, here's a light and fluffy movie. The Cat Returns, 2002 from Hiroyuki Morita. Not really a sequel, kind of a spinoff for A Whisper of the Heart. Uh, in Whis- in yes, sense. In Whisper of the Heart, the girl decides to write her own fantasy novel and we see brief segments of it which is like you were commenting on that one poster um uh, ostensibly this is the story that she wrote and they got the main uh they got the voice actress of the girl from the last movie not to play the main character here but to like be on sort of the periphery and be one of the friends as well and and here yeah so and here is the cute story that she wrote and it's light and fluffy, and it's about what happens when, uh, if a girl saves uh, the prince of the cats. The cats have their own special kingdom that's, you know, not really seen by human eyes. A girl is very nice. She saves a cat, the prince of the cats, from being killed. Well, what happens when her dad, the king of the cats, uh, decides, like, well, I'm going to reward you. What if I reward you by having you marry my son, the prince of the cats? It's a, it's a cute story. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's seventy five minutes in length. So I it's love that. one of the sh- yeah, it's, it, it does not overstay its welcome by a long stretch, and it is just a really charming. Not to mention, even visually, it's one of the more distinct uh, films compared to because again, particularly because Hayao Miyazaki did so many of these films, and there's such a unique style to his work. Uh, when you see the like the degree of variation that happens in the design of this film, uh, it does tend to stand out. And it's not necessarily that it's so unique that it's like it's not like my neighbor the Yamada the Yamadas here, which is like a completely different style altogether here. But it's just uh, just slightly model. different faces, which is refreshing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it gives it a, yeah its own unique flavor there. And yeah, it's is it you know a great one of their all time greats? No. But it doesn't need to be. It does what it does very well. And for that, I mean, yeah, I would highly recommend people checking it out. It's a lot of fun. Here we're back to Miyazaki with Porco Rosso from 1992. Why don't you start with it? Yeah, my, again, probably one of the more most interesting ones. I put this at number seven on my list. I honestly want to revisit this one maybe sooner rather than later because it's one of the most interesting and weird yeah. <laughs> films that he's probably made uh, because yeah, it's like combining issues of warfare with sort of magical transformations and just like, yeah, no, that's just a fact of life here. And his interest in uh, aircraft is on full display in this movie without the problematic elements that come with uh, the wind rises with, I uh, would say less problematic elements, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. It's not completely gone here in this instance, but it's one of these things where it's like, again, like, here's a film where our protagonist has the head of a pig. Do they ever explain why he has the head of a pig? No! Kind of, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's... It's a self-inflicted curse, if that makes sense, yeah. But also, speaking yeah. of which, I've read the, this comic as well, too, which he just started as a funny thing, and that really unlocks it even more. It's like, why is Porco Rosso, why is he a pig man? And the, an- the answer to that is, well, why is Donald Duck a duck? And why is Mickey and why is Mickey Mouse a mouse? And this for this one time, Miyazaki said, I'm going to draw a pig cartoon character, and the other characters happen to be human. 
Like, does that matter when Donald Duck interacts with a human character sometimes? It's like that that is so that is um the answer for why he started drawing it like this. Uh there yeah. are there is a scene in this movie where it gets more into here is a man, he was a pilot, he is so disgusted with um all his friends died in World War One and uh I, I just hate being human now. He wakes up, he's a pig now. Okay. That that and, is yeah. if, if if he can overcome that, and that's the that's the promise at the end of the movie to make it a little bit romantic. At the very end of the movie, when he finally decides, I'm gonna stop feeling terrible about myself, being ter- feeling bad that my friends died. And so, in the last scenes of the movie, the girlfriend is gone. He's gone. Did he stop being a pig? Yeah. The answer is yes. He he got to be a human again. It's just sweet. It's nice. Yeah, and it's kind of very sort of old, swashbuckling is the wrong term, but there's definitely that feeling of, you know, just sort of like high adventure. I mean, because, you know, he is a bounty hunter chasing, quote unquote, air pirates uh, in this instance. We get, you know, things like there's eventually kind of a fist fight in the water with everybody cheering the, the, uh, them on in the course. Like, there's a lot of fun sequences and fun material going on here and again you know the the, uh the uh, main character in the sense he's a charming roguish figure in many ways and probably one of the most like just uh appealing there and yeah the design of the character with the pig head there and usually a cigarette dangling out of his mouth in this instance is it's you know very charming and very engaging in that way and it's absolutely sort of delightful in that sense there and yeah i would really recommend checking out this one if only because it's not quite the film you think it is Mm. when you get into it necessarily because how do you quite predict what this is going to be uh going into it because it's a little hard to pin down in that way it is fun you know uh uh it started out as that comic, and then um, I think I don't know Nippon Airline is a Jap- Japan airline. I don't know uh, uh, an, an airline asked uh, Ghibli, "Can you make a uh, movie that we will show uh, just in our airplanes that won't get a theatrical release?" Miyazaki said, "Sure, I'll do that." And he started with this story. It got too long, and the budget was too big that he's like, "No, it's got to have a theatrical release as well." But that explains why it opens up with a typewriter typing out the premise in several different languages, because the movie was intended to just be shown on flights. And it's all about flying and like that's that's where it started. And the airline still owns a cut of that movie so they can always show it on their airplanes for free because they own part of the movie. Yeah. But that is okay. Yeah, that's that's kind of fun. If you wonder, well, like, well, why does it start with this typewriter and this little fun thing? Like, oh, that's why they were going to explain in multiple languages for uh, people on flights what this movie is about. So I like that. Yeah, okay. I, I I just kind of viewed it as just a, a, a unique affect, just, a, you know, sort of a choice there. But no, that makes way more sense out of it. Uh, yeah, that is fun. And guess what yeah. is not fun? Guess what is we, not fun at all? Earwig and the t- Witch, 2020 by Goro Miyazaki. Oh, God. This, uh, um, and this, um, people will call it like, oh, it got a theatrical, it got a limited theatrical release. It was intended for TV broadcast. Yeah, this thing, it's... Look, this is the worst film Ghibli has released. I, and I, again, 
I'm, I know you would. Oh yeah, okay. No uh, we, we'll, we'll get into fisticuffs about it because I think uh, Tales from Earthsea is worse than this one. But yeah, this is my second worst one. Uh, it's the the original story, which is an amusing short, short little story by Diana Wynne Jones. It was one of her last stories she wrote. I think it actually got published after her death. And Diana Wynne Jones also wrote Howl's Moving Castle, which was also much better when she wrote it as a story than it was adapted to a movie yeah it, look this thing like it feels like a pilot for a tv show that didn't get picked up yeah really at the end of the day. like it ends on a note where like i don't know if they intended to make sequels or if that's always been the plan and we just haven't seen them yet but it like nothing like, this story goes nowhere doesn't add up to much it brings up ideas that you think, oh, this is going to be significant or mean something, and go nowhere. Like, there is just, like, even, like, you look at the poster for this thing, uh, again, and you're sitting there thinking it's, oh, music and rock and roll are going to be significant. It's going to have something like maybe uh, the titular character here is going to become a musician in this instance, and no. <laughs> that, that, that's and not that was entirely for the, the TV special. The, the music does not play a part in the book. I figured that... Um, this story would have done fine adapted as like a wonky, like maybe 1980s British TV special, right? Like something, yeah. something that looks weird and is just a half hour long and people just kind of remember, yeah, that was a weird one that they aired one Christmas or something. But as an, it's an, I think it's an hour and a half, right? I don't think it's two hours, but like as, as a full movie, the story, I could read the story faster than that. And it overstays its welcome, and it's not very good as a movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's like in the big the thing that also marks it visually is distinct here is that this is a full CG animated film, the only one, yeah, uh, in their library. And it like kind of looks and, like on a budget. Yeah. Oh yeah, it, like this is hands down the worst animation that they've produced. Like I like every other film, I can sit there and say, oh yeah, you know, there's gorgeous sequences or beautiful things here. No, this honestly looks like, you know, this could have been thrown on on Nickelodeon um, uh, on a Saturday night there as part of their cheapy pro uh, broadcast programming. And again, I feel bad because I want to root for you, Goro. I really do. Yep. But this does nothing in your favor here. So, so yeah, uh, nothing to recommend for me. Even the English voice cast, like the only maybe positive I can say is I think it's Richard E. Grant. Uh playing the one figure in the English language version. And I did listen, watch this one with the English oh, okay. language uh, track off of Netflix because I don't think they had, when I was looking for it, the Japanese language track for it, uh, surprisingly okay. enough there. Uh, there And yeah, I mean, he's good. He's enjoyable. That's it. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. So I think we're past all the bad ones, which, by the way, everyone, the bad ones are in no particular order. Earwig and the Witch, Tales from Earthsea, Ocean Waves. Was there a fourth one that we figured wasn't? When Marnie was there. Well, yeah, when, Mar when Marnie was there, I don't I don't think that's worth watching particularly. But we will yeah. get to, guess what? Just by chance, some of the best uh, ones at the end here, I think. We've got for you, Dave, Only Yesterday, 1991 by Takahata. Yeah, hands down my favorite uh, of the entire group here. And I say that say, knowing here that I was not expecting to necessarily be all that interested in this film. Like, I figured it was going to be, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, slice of life premise, it'll be fine. 
And I was just sort of jaw on the ground in terms of just how much this film won me over and just packs a punch emotionally watching this thing. Because it really is just sort of a very sweet sort of rumination on childhood and growing up uh, here and sort of figuring out, well, what is it you actually kind of want in life? And this is the film where I think uh, Takahata's, you know, sort of episodic structure works 100% uh, in his favor on this movie here. Absolutely. Because the vignettes, they're perfectly uh, paced. The sort of overview we get of childhood is just like the, the vignettes are absolutely fascinating and interesting there. And again, it's one of those, these films, which, you know, women protagonists are, you know, there are plenty throughout Studio Ghibli here, but this one like just feels authentic in a way that many of the others, not partly because, you know, they're either engaging in fantasy tropes uh, or sort of stock character types in many instances, but here, you know, it's just, you know, this very sweet natured look back, you know, with a character who's on vacation, uh, effectively out in the countryside and ruminating on why she likes being there and what it was like uh, growing up in this uh, environment, you know, in her childhood there. And yeah, it it's just, it really charmed the hell out of me the whole way through. And I really wasn't anticipating that going in this film. So it was, you know... And even visually, like, again, you know, there's no sequence like, you know, Kiki's Delivery Service. Like, you get standout, like, sort of very flashy sequences in that kind of a film uh, there. Or, you know, we haven't touched on Ponyo yet there. But again, there's some absolutely flashy uh, sequences in terms of the animation and uh, sort of the cleverness of the design here. This is, again, you know, just very, you know authentic, grounded, nothing particularly flashy, but always engaging and beautiful. And the attention to detail in the backgrounds of shots and, you know, things like even the food that they're eating in this one. I mean, I've been seeing, you know, this is one of those ones where, again, look at how they design the food. Look at the stuff that Ghibli food itself is a whole meme on the internet because it's like, look at how delicious they make the food look. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I highly recommend, like, and again, there's no, like, there's no false drama. The stakes are literally about as low as any film that they've ever produced in this instance. And that's fine. Like, I just really, like, it's sweet, it's engaging, and the score to this film is phenomenal. Uh there it might just be my favorite uh in this instance and this is from uh kasu hoshi uh who did it here who again i i can't say that i'm super familiar uh with their work outside of this at all but i love the music for this film here and i would highly recommend uh people check that out as well if you get the chance to I'm uh, glad. What about you, Ross? I I know you're maybe not as high as I am on no, this. No, uh, I, I think it is a very great movie, too, and I'm glad that you love it so much, and I don't have anything really to add. Just, just like, yeah, it, it is a very excellent movie, and it's very sweet. I like it. Uh, You, you know what? You mentioned a, a movie there, Ponyo. For some reason, maybe I picked up two papers at once by accident, uh, so I, I seem to have misplaced Ponyo. So next one on the draw will say Ponyo. Uh, 2008 or 2009. And uh, it's also, it's very good. Guess what, everyone? 
it's the Little Mermaid. And, yeah, you know, when you think about it, that's a little bit audacious to uh, Disney. One of their more famous recent movies is The Little Mermaid. For Miyazaki to go, I can do The Little Mermaid. And he does. And it's equally as just an excellent movie. And it's very sweet. The, the kids, instead of being teenagers or adults, they're little kids. And the girl, uh, rather, the, the fish, she is in love with this little boy who helped her. And... What if she, I, maybe I'd like to be a human instead. And it's just very cute, but uh, it's, there's there's stormy seas and all that. The stormy seas and all the the waves are also sort of magical fish or whales, right? That, that <laughs> crash up on land. That's all Yonabayashi again. Yonabayashi, one of his specialties is um, making liquids and liquid people and slimy things and stuff. And yeah. so he's doing all those water effects. And Ponyo, I just think it's very sweet. Um, it's probably even more than Tachiro, which we'll talk to in a, a, talk about in a moment. Uh, this is probably one of the best ones to show little kids. And I'll show, it's kind of in regular rotation with my kids. Yeah, and I showed, like, back when this thing originally came out, I showed it actually, my one cousin, she was quite young uh, at the time. Uh, I showed this to her, and she was enraptured with it there. This is my second favorite mm. uh, of the entire bunch. I love this movie and i will say this i'm not somebody who particularly likes the disney version of the little mermaid uh the whole sort of eisner era of animation is one that i don't have the same sort of feelings towards even though i grew up when that was uh hitting out at the time okay but this particular rendition i think is just absolutely charming there's a lot of imagination and visual beauty on display there because in addition there like the well, one thing that's worth noting is the character of ponyo and uh her, her shifting body over the course of this and like the, the, this the stages of like in being in between and going into this almost like very squishy face looking looks to a far more human look at different points there depending upon her emotional state or what she's doing there and again the, the whole notion of like th i love the supporting cast of characters like the uh retirement home uh women the grannies uh, yeah the, yeah who are just getting involved in this year the you know sort of sweet you know bickering between pot or uh between the protagonist's uh mother here uh, and her husband, who's out at sea because he's working there. He's a sailor, and having, like, yeah. Just, and he's yeah. trying. He's trying to get home, but he can't get home that night. And then a storm erupts. Yeah, yeah. And then just you know, having a bickering, fighting, using Morse code <laughs> over the time. Like it's those little touches that are just so endearing and so engaging. Uh, there, I, like it really is. I, I would say probably the best one to show young kids as an introductory point. Absolutely. Uh, in this case, so highly recommended uh, there. Get your hands on it uh, w without question. It's also a great um, one. And we are ending off by, isn't this neat? We're ending off with what many people would consider the big one. It's not their highest grossing movie. I forget what that is. I think that's Spirited Away as well. Here, one second. Before, while we're still doing this, highest grossing Ghibli movie. I think it's Spirited Away. It is Spirited Away. But... One of their biggest earlier successes, uh, the, the one that became the, the the character logo and the one that gets all the toys made and my kids and my wife have toys of this character is My Neighbor Totoro from 1988. It's Hayao Miyazaki again. And there was a person posting on Twitter uh, 
a month or two months ago saying, oh, I just love Ghibli movies that they have no conflict. And then just thousands of people, it was kind of unfair, thousands of people uh, dogpiling on this person for saying that Ghibli movies have no conflict when they do. And uh, even this one, but I understand what their point was. They, I think their point was that sometimes these movies don't have an obvious enemy, I would say. And, yes. in, and in this one, there's almost no enemy until it, you get you you meet the mom who's in a rural hospital and you get the realization the uh, as an adult, you can also figure out the mom has tuberculosis, which is so this is not this is about two little girls. So it's not Miyazaki's life. However, his mom was in hospitals a lot with tuberculosis, and this was kind of his life's experience. Like, in a way, uh, 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 I'm sure uh, The Wind Rises is another very personal movie for him. I think this is another very personal movie for him that kids trying to wrestle with the fact that what if my mom is sick? What if she dies? And I think it's it's very sweet. And and a uh, girl goes missing at one point, but they've it's okay. They've got some spirit animal friends who live in the forest who are vaguely uh, not not entirely, but vaguely. This is you know Japanese Shinto ideas that there might be magical foxes or tanuki or, uh, or tanuki or or some other things living in the forest. And you know what? Sometimes bad things happens, but other times, just like at the end of the credits, sometimes things are going to turn out okay, and the kids get their mom back. And I think it's very sweet. I've shown, uh, uh, I show this to my kids, of course, they have the toys. I've shown this sometimes to very small, in, in the, the English language version, to uh, a few very uh, young classes. And I think it's a very sweet movie. If, you know, if it's, this is my wife's favorite movie. And uh, it's really up there for me with animated movies as well, and I think it's great. Yeah, and I can't. I mean, I put it number five on my list, but again, it's not because you know it's purely a case of personal preference on that. Like, there, I, there's this is a you know not a film with any particular flaws that I can find. It is absolutely enjoyable, utterly adorable. I haven't had a chance to show it to my niece and nephew yet. I, I really want to. There, it is. A really, really charming film. And I 100% get why Totoro has become the kind of icon. And yeah, I'm sure yeah, Miyazaki would hate calling him the Mickey Mouse of Studio Ghibli in many ways. But, you know, not that he far must off. Like, I mean, yeah, you're right. He's so grumpy and he was like, eh, I'm not like Disney. But, like, he must recognize, like, no, you made him the logo. And if not the biggest money maker in theaters this is this accounts for like the vast majority of what your extra your your product sales are and he would have to concede that it's like yeah i get your point but like, yeah this this is the big cuddly guy who's who's a animal thing it, that is sort of the face of ghibli yeah well exactly yeah and i mean and i you know and it, that's the thing like i Sometimes there are things where, you know, you can just, you get why it hit it big and you get why it's become the icon it is. And yeah, I, who can argue with that in this instance? I 100% get where kids particular, you know, you see this at the right age, this thing will imprint on you for life. Uh, in this instance, I wasn't one of those ones who had that as a kid in me, uh, in that experience as a kid myself. But I, you know, I can easily believe, you know, if I had been six or seven and I had seen this at the time, you know, this thing probably would have been in regular rotation for myself. 
uh, at the time. It's just, it is that good and that worthwhile. And yeah, highly, I mean, this one is probably the easiest film to get your hands on. I mean, they're all reasonably easy. Yeah. But if you wander into any, you know, uh, back when you could go into things like a Sunrise Video or HMV and find discs. Um, You're dating there. yourself, Dave. Yeah, but this is... Sunrise Video. I know. Let's go I to know. Jumbo a, Video. Yeah, well, we're not going to go that far. I'm not that old here. Well, I am. Um, but, but yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you still happen to have something place that sells physical media uh, in, in front of you, you're probably going to have a relatively easy time finding a copy of this on their shelves. I mean, or it's streaming, or it's one of the obvious ones streaming somewhere. Again, as all yeah. Hey, who knows what the heck is going on at HBO Max? But as of this this year, I don't know if they're off now. But uh, the Ghibli movies, most of them were on HBO Max, and most of them were on Netflix in Canada. Dave, it's that time. Let's do hits and pits. Do you have? Yes. A, do you have a first hit? <sighs> Uh, in general here, uh, Takahata, I just want to salute him because I, I think, you know, Miyazaki, understandably, gets a lot of attention here in this instance. Uh, and I understand why that's the case. Takahata, I think, sometimes gets overshadowed. I mean, certainly Grave of the Fireflies gets its due. Poco Roku, or, or Pompoko, sorry, uh, gets its due there as well. But I think because he produced so few films comparatively, he his work does get overshadowed. And I think he's every bit uh, as masterful as Miyazaki is. And I think ultimately is more interesting because of how much willing he was willing to stretch and do other things uh, compared to Miyazaki, who once he found his groove, it was really hard. It's really hard to get Miyazaki to sort of break away from the things he likes to talk about and do necessarily. I agree. Miyazaki has a rut sometimes. Yeah. I will go for my first hit is a uh, musician, Joe Hizashi, his music scores. I think he's one of my favorite uh, movie composers. Full stop. Mostly most of his scores are based around piano. He's very good. He did all of uh, Miyazaki's movies with the exception of the loop and the third movie. Uh, he did, uh, Princess Kaguya for Takahata as well. I forget if he did any others. And just just really great scores. Yes. Do you have a second hit? Uh, Goro Miyazaki, because I do just want to give the You're man You're so nice. That's yeah, so like, nice of the, you. The, the, the dude is just, it's like, it's like, yeah, I may not like your movies, but man, your dad is a jerk. Like, there's just no getting around that. <laughs> to his adult, his his son, who was 30 years old or something at the time, I thought yeah. my son was a man. He is not. He is a child. My <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's, it's again, it's in response to, he made a movie that didn't live up to your standards. It's not like, you know, he's living at home, you know, petulantly, petulantly you know, throwing a temper tantrum or something like this. It's like, Hey, Dad, do you like the movie I made? No, you, you could you could just simply say it's like it's not perfect, but you know you, you did pretty well. Like, no, you are not a man. Um, okay, wow. <laughs> thanks, Dad. That seemed unnecessary and excessive. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there, there's my hit for that reason. What about you? Ross? I love it that you gave it. You're so nice. You gave it to him, and he made your least favorite movie, the the earwig and the witch. 
But anyway, yeah, that's nice of you. Uh, I'm going to someone we have not talked about yet, Kazuo Oga. Um, Kazuo Oga, he was in charge of a lot of the backgrounds and sometimes the whole art direction. So every time you see landscapes and the wind blows over the grass or the characters go into a forest and there's dappled light through trees, that almost always is this uh, person named Kazuo Oga. When, uh, there's art ex when there are art exhibitions and sometimes at the Ghibli Museum, um, the advertisement goes the man who created or the man who drew uh, Totoro's forest. So like e everyone can like, oh, he's that he's that person. He's the person who made the Totoro landscapes. And actually, he made lots and lots of landscapes. But that that is who I'd give it to. Um, that uh, the landscapes are often in this in these movies very beautiful. Yeah, no, absolutely there. And it's hard not to overstate just how great the background details and world building is uh, in these films there. Uh, so, yeah, no, that definitely is worth highlighting in this instance. But that does bring us to the pits here. So what would you like to highlight, Ross, as a first pit for you? I would love... I, I talk sometimes as if, like, after reading all his some of his essays, I would sort of like to almost kind of I'd like to do this is like to get over to Miyazaki with a translator and like pick away at him because he is so picky at his son at yeah. every other animator in the world is like, there's a mistake. There's a mistake. There's a mistake. And I would like to pick at him about the mouth acting because um, these are, and, and a lot of people are going to say, what's wrong with the mouths? And like the faces are, uh, and, and, and face acting and like the faces are, generally very cute and and perfectly serviceable in these movies but yeah that's what they are they are serviceable and he's doing the um the japanese general method of uh here are a few limited uh uh mouth uh designs and we're not going to stray from that and a lot of the faces are basically blank faces it's uh you mentioned way back sailor moon a problem, yeah. uh, th this is an anime thing, and I like anime well enough and in general, but this is a thing that I call, I call it the, the Sailor Moon problem in that all the characters the in Sailor Moon basically look the same. And you're yeah. supposed to differentiate them sometimes from the colors, like, you know, like, like oh, this one is red and this one is yellow and stuff like that. And you're supposed to differentiate them between th with that and their hairstyles. Not always, but a lot of these faces have no personality and they have like five mouth movements. And if you compare that uh, back to uh, uh, Disney, if you compare that to The Little Mermaid, Ariel, she, she her face is not 100% human because, you know, all... Uh, all uh, animated characters are some abstraction to some level, but she makes all these faces and she puffs up and she'll she'll look sad a certain way and she'll play around with her hair and face and all that. And Ariel is very expressive and so is Belle and so are uh, Aladdin and all these characters. And in a lot of uh, Miyazaki, in a lot of Ghibli movies, and especially a lot of Miyazaki movies, they are not. He doesn't. He cares so much about the uh, human movement, the movement of the limbs, and walking cycles and stuff. And he doesn't. He basically just says, "Oh, the faces can be just blank. Just, just, just three. There's just three different looks." And I find that a big problem. And la last thing, I noticed it was a problem um, at the start of the Porco Rosso movie. There was something that went wrong because uh, uh, the woman, basically the the love interest, she is singing an opera, and there's a moment I was like, 
What's wrong with that moment? And I figured it out is because she was a, a real act, a real singer is singing an operetta or opera or something. And she, in real life, I could recognize you would have to make a certain face with your, you would have to make a certain movement with your mouth that the animated character didn't bother to do. She like, it was just like open or close. It was like, well, that's not right. And is this a small, very niche, nitpicky thing? Like, yeah, yeah, it is. Because, like, these are such beautiful movies and um, they're good stories and there's so many good things to compliment about them. But he, the people working on them generally don't do this face acting thing that, sorry, like, if you're going to complain about Disney, Disney are, are generally very good with that sort of stuff. And they just don't bother over it, Ghibli. Well, and even going back to things like the Fleischer Superman cartoons, like there's the one set under the big top uh, when the circus is oh, yes. and there's one shot there that always stands out to me. Because again, if you've ever seen their design of Superman, he's mostly uh, squinty eyed, so you never really see his pupils or anything. He's very Joe Schuster looking, yeah. Exactly. But then there's that one shot every so often where, and again, and that one always stands out to me where suddenly we see like a very wild eyed Superman. <laughs> Uh, in a moment there, and it just sort of shocks you, and, you know, it has more expression uh, in terms of the facial acting in this, you know, 70-plus-year-old cartoon at this point uh, compared to some of what we see in, uh, yeah, what we see in the facial acting here, and I completely agree with you uh, on that one, absolutely. And do you have a pit? Uh, Miyazaki here, and it's... His the rut he finds himself in with his thematics here. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, but look, I mean, obviously part of the idea of auteur cinema is that, you know, there are certain things that, you know, filmmakers become obsessive about or are the things they keep returning to uh, in this instance. And that's absolutely the case. What distinguishes, though, like, let's just take somebody like Akira Kurosawa in this instance there. Kurosawa definitely had... Uh, interest in things that he loved to return to over the course of his films. But look at also the the breadth of the work he did and the genres he worked in and the stories he told. Yeah, those thematic interests were there, but it was there was a, quite a bit of variation and nuance and playfulness there that you just don't get with Miyazaki. He, like, at a certain... This was the thing that particularly when you watch these films as close together yes. as he did you really start to notice the patterns, the tropes, the, you know, shtick that he gets really reliant upon. And I, again, I'm sure he's rejecting everything I'm saying right now, uh, if he's ever going to hear this. But no, like, I mean, yeah, I think he gets to be a lazy storyteller sometimes when it becomes that, because it is just relying on the same shtick and the same idea. And I don't think, like, his anti-war themes, I don't think he ever particularly finds any new or novel approaches to that. Takahata made a better anti-war film with, with uh grave or grave of the fireflies where it's like, look, here are some innocent kids. They don't deserve this. And look at what war can cause to them versus <sighs> Miyazaki had some frankly more juvenile story, uh, which is an odd thing to say, right? Cause they're about adults. He had some more juvenile stories about here are some adults trying to t wrestle with the fact, well, should I be a part of war? Should I not like with Howl? or um, I'm going to make an airplane, but like, Oh, but it's used for bad things, but just a total juvenile level of thought process and morality in <sighs> 
what does wh- what are my actions? What are they impacting? And like he just drops the ball and doesn't care because he doesn't want to face up to some hard truths about himself and about you know about Japan and about his parents' generation. I think. Well, you're absolutely right, and even you know, and even if you move past the the, the anti-war themes, if you look at you know the the strong environmental messaging of most of his films, again, like he relies on the same sort of you know tropes over and over again. There's maybe an embodiment of either nature or natural forces there that gets embodied here, and it needs protecting. And oh, nature doesn't understand. We need to sort of. Respect it. Like, it's the thing. It just it is an idea that, again, going right back to Nausicaa, uh, there where it's like, we need to make peace and understand that we have to coexist and live with nature and it's a symbiotic relationship. And hey, again, in principle, I'm completely with you on that there. By about the third time you've done this in your career, when you get to Spirited Away, you know, you re- uh, are not spirited away. Um, You're thinking of Princess Monokoke, but even a, yeah. even spirited away, that's another one. I agree with you yeah. where there's a reveal that some of the spirits there are um, damaged, polluted, or even totally gone. You know, yeah. uh, 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 rivers and things that, that these things have, have spirits, which is a thing in uh, China and Korea and Japan that for uh, Westerners that we would see um, bodies of water as nymphs. But uh, in Asia, the like, I mean, it, it, it also makes sense thematically because a winding river, what could that be? That could also be a dragon. So yeah. I'm, I'm spoiling spirited away. They don't show the river or the absence of the river before they get to that reveal. Like if you're going to if you're going to have that environmentalist message right at the end of the movie, maybe hint at it in the opening scenes. And he just he just didn't care because he's just this is just what he does. I, and, and there's there's a middle scene where there is a polluted water spirit where he saves. But again, he's showing the abstract spirits made manifest. He's not showing. The reality, uh, he's not showing the real world of this is, here's a polluted area, now I'm going to move into the fantasy with this. Well, absolutely. And, he, and again, and then even, even just to compare him to Takahata as well here, I mean, Takahata made his own, you know, you know, protect the environment film in the form of um, Pompoko yeah. here. And yeah, he did that. And then it's like, okay, what else can I do? I, I've said what I needed to say. Uh Oh, hey, let's go off and do, you know, two or three other things that aren't just riffs on the same idea. So I think, you know, that's probably my biggest pit there. And that's, you know, strictly with Hayao Miyazaki in this instance there. Aside from the other pit of him being just a jerk of a dad. But that's all, you know, we've been harping on that pretty hard. And I would agree with you. And that's sort of, I I, even just right there, we sort of um, weaved in and out of my criticism as well. It's some hypocritical. I mean, is, is this fair? Is this not? I don't know. Like, I'm I'm just going to say it anyway, that this isn't always the movies themselves. So maybe this like roll Ross. Well, then you're not criticizing the movies. You're criticizing the people making the movies. Well, you know what, but just sort of things like, his criticisms of war and like, yeah, go ahead, criticize America. That's what you're doing in Howl's Moving Castle. Do you want to have some introspection and criticism of what Japan has done? No, you don't want to do that. So I think you're, uh, I think um, Miyazaki is a hypocrite for that. As you say, uh, going on about the environment and like, 
okay, fair enough. Like, do you have something new to say about that? A big one for me is about workers and the exploitation of workers because like spirited away and a lot of these, a lot of the, um, also, uh, whisper of the heart, which he did not, he did not direct that one, but he, he made the script for that one. And what appealed to him about that movie was kids deciding how hard they are going to work for the rest of their life. And in isolation, it's a very sweet story. When you consider it's about a, a man who was born rich, owns the company, and then gets to dictate to other people how hard they are going to work, and you get to work for a living wage while I get to be a millionaire and become more of a millionaire, I find that often disgusting. Oh, uh, they're uh, spirited away. <sighs> Miyazaki, in Spirited Away, Miyazaki totally sees himself as the spidery man down in the engines, down in the furnaces, yeah. who is making the whole thing operate. That is who Miyazaki sees himself as. And in those th books that I was reading, he write like he was imagining um, the witch at the top of the uh, at the top of the hotel as some evil women that he's known throughout life. Oh, and there's another one. There's no women direct. There's no women directors in all of these uh, movies. Ghibli has never yeah. done that. It was like there's another area you can improve on. But he says like, oh yeah, here's this witch at the top of there. And I think he for again for being a generally a thoughtful guy. He is totally unaware that, no, you are more, you might even more be the witch at the top of the hotel, of the, the bathhouse and spirited away because you're up there. You get to, he says like, well, I'm not spending all day counting my money. No, you're just forcing everyone to work as hard as possible. And you have a pile of money and everyone else does not. And you think that telling this magical story of a girl who learns the value of believing in herself and hard work you think that killing yourself at work is fine and not getting rewarded, you know, commensurate to you is, is fine. And I find that I find him a totally oblivious boss in that regard. Well, and it's one of these things I look at him and I, part of me, he's one, particularly the more you find out about his life, the more you find out about his relationship with his son uh, and uh, his family in general, there's a large part of me that wonders whether when it comes to, you know, the emotional affect of his films and the themes he likes to address and the, the fact that he keeps repeating those themes there, part of me wonders if it is just a nature of, you know, he's invested in these things solely as stories there. And he's able to pick up on the authenticity in the sense of them being narratives the degree to which he then can connect that back to his life is very dubious because again, you would sit there and think for somebody who seems to understand kids or the whimsy of childhood itself there and seems to have these things, the, the complete disconnect as it seems to relate to his relationship with his own children here his, or his own child here is shocking. I think you are perfectly on there because uh, his wife has pointed out, like he says, like, oh, I would design a school like this. And his wife chimes in and says, what do you know about children? You didn't raise our sons. Well, and that's just, and that's the thing that kind of just boggles the mind where it's like, I get, he is very much, to play armchair psychologist for a second, he's probably a workaholic. Uh, more oh, well, than well, well that, that bit is obvious. Yeah. He came well, out yeah. of retirement again to make another, he's going to, he's going to die over in that office. But like, but for him, that's going to be his choice. He seems to be such a miserable individual. And 
Yeah, I just, I, I, part of me wonders, like, the, the only place where he's able to find any happiness or really make sense of the world almost seems to be in his art. And yeah, it, that, that seems almost more like an escape for reality for him, maybe more so than it is anything else. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe he channels all that energy into it and th- there's nothing else there for anything else in his life to be able to make that connection with. So, and again, you know, he wouldn't be the first artist where that's the case, uh, understandably there. I mean, how many filmmakers have, and storytellers have told absolutely beautiful stories, uh, you know, that seem to give these very, you know, noble, lofty, you know, views of the world and what life can be. And you just find out afterwards, oh, no, you're a scumbag or a hypocrite or you've exploited people and done the exact opposite of everything that your work suggests here. I mean... He's not alone in that, uh, to say the least, but it's just, it seems very striking, again, given the position that he, he's held culturally, in, particularly in film culture yeah. uh, across the globe there, that, that it seems to be one of those things where I don't know, like, I don't think I've ever seen a sustained criticism of him in any corner uh, there, that's and I think of, that's... yeah yeah. That's kind of what, and everyone, if it's not like, man, Ross, Dave, you're, again, I think I, I think I started the podcast like this. You guys are really going hard on Miyazaki and, and, uh, don't let Takahata slip by either because he was, you know, he was the guy, um, who, who drove some employees to madness uh, as well. Yeah. Um, I like these, <laughs> that's a sad thing. I like these films and I don't think. I wish uh, there had been fewer movies and that the workers have been better treated and got to profit off of these movies the way that their bosses did that I wish I wish it was more equitably uh, uh distributed. And so so that that's the piece that I uh, I think that we did something a bit different here today in not just saying cuz there are other people and other I'm sure other Ghibli podcasts who just say, "Oh, this is magical, this is great." It's like, "You know what? Here's behind a bit of the sausage being made." some miserable people and they're making their workers miserable and incredible that I think that some of these movies are so darn good. Some of these are my favorite movies, but we, we gave a different perspective on this. I think, uh, I hope it does inspire people to take a a little bit of a closer look, uh, at these things and consider them, uh, there, particularly if this is your first time hearing about some of these, uh, issues, certainly there, uh, and again, it's not, you know, the, the goal is not to take away from the things you, you love because we love them too, but be critical of your darlings as well. Uh, certainly. Absolutely. Well, Dave, it's, it's Christmas. <laughs> Bells are jingling and all that. Cause, Oh, I think I hear Santa. Um, Merry Christmas and happy holidays and happy new year to you and to everyone. And Dave, We've already yes. we've already talked about this, so like we're we keep on watching. This is Japanese movie club. Everyone, someone out there should join us for one of these. Like like you can watch along with us if you've got the movies. What movie series should we look at next? Because we've seen Zatoichi, we've seen Godzilla, we've seen all the Ghibli movies. By the way, um, <laughs> timely. There's a new Ghibli um uh, theme park that looks to be just mostly statues to me so far. Like it doesn't actually look that interesting really but it's open in japan now and uh next year miyazaki like 
if he doesn't drop dead sometime. This next movie is coming out next year after, again, like another 10 years of him saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire, and then he just didn't. So he's got a new movie coming out next year, but we're still rolling along with Japanese movie clubs. So what series should we watch for 2023? Yeah, I'm just imagining if Miyazaki drops dead and then Goro is announced as taking over and finishing the film. Like I would, I part of me would almost hope that there's like a spiteful. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll finish it. We'll see. That would be good. Down. Oh, I'll tell you. Oh, <laughs> I'll tell you a joke that um, Toshio yeah. Suzuki. There's, it's filmed. It's on um, one of the la- the most recent uh, documentaries of filming over there. Toshio Suzuki basically tells him, like, he goes, hey, you know what? If you finish most of the film and then if you die, that'll increase sales, you know. And then they both men laugh. So at least they both have a sense of humor about their mortality and his position of popularity in the world. So, like, he's got a morbid sense of humor enough for that. Is that like, yeah, if you just yeah. die while before the movie comes out, that'll increase ticket sales. Yeah, he's not wrong. Yeah. Um, so what movies should we watch next? Well, why not? You know, we are we taking a year off from Kaiju Cinema. I think we're ready to dive back in at this time. Sure. And maybe let's go with Godzilla's closest rival? The Pepsi. The what what what's another Pepsi? I don't know the Chevrolet, the Crystal Pepsi. Well, well, oh, well no, sorry. no. Like, if Godzilla's did Godzilla have a Coke ad or was that a Pepsi ad? I don't remember that now. I think it was a Pepsi ad. I, I oh, think. rats! Well, then, uh, well, that doesn't make yeah. sense because then that means that Gamera is the Coke, but Gamera is totally not the Coca Cola yeah. of Kaiju. But no, or he's like he's the he's off, the RC Cola. He's the RC Cola. He's the off-brand <laughs> thing. Yeah. But he is so lovable, if not necessarily always. good. Good. Uh, but yes, the uh, the Gamera series, all Yay. the way through from the first one to the most recent one. Uh, this will not take nearly as long to get through as the Godzilla films. There is far less Gamera uh, collectively over, you know, 50 years uh, plus years at this point. And of this Gamera is back movies. to Dae Studios. This is, again, the RC Cola. This is the other, the also ran movie studio who had Zatoichi films while Toho had the bigger, the bigger stars and the bigger budgets. Yeah, this will be a lot of fun because I've never seen a Gamera movie, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and I've seen the bulk of the original run and the 90s trilogy, but there's a few that have still slipped me by, including the most recent uh, Gamera movie there from which is all, like going back still an entire decade if not more at this point so yeah this will be uh, absolutely fun and yeah th- those films are easily available right now thanks to Arrow Video so if you want to join in on that uh, now's your chance folks or again uh, everyone recommended. if you don't want to invest in the set libraries exist I'm always st- saying like go check out a library they've got movies for you there they do, but I'm trying to make sure that the physical media market doesn't die completely on us here, folks. So, uh, you know, support it. Well, support it yeah, any sure. way you okay, can. Check, check, let, me, let me put it this way. Check it out if your yeah. library system has that first. If you enjoy it, then you, you purchase it. So that is, everyone, said, everyone says, oh, vi- I wish video rental stores were back. It's like, they're basically, they're available for you and they're free in your town or city. Probably. Yeah. So until 2023, uh, I've been Dave Babbitt. I've been Ross May. I was trying to think of a joke, but I, I, <laughs> I guess I just am Ross May. I can't deny it. Happy holidays, yeah. everyone, and happy New Year. Uh, yep, indeed, and see you then. Yep, bye. <laughs>